Hey, how's it going? That's pretty good. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Yeah, How are you guys doing? Yeah, we're really looking forward to it as well. Yeah, we're doing well. Um, it's really good to speak to someone outside of the Hive ecosystem who um, seems to have an idea of what decentralization actually is. Um, and we've all got our own little different uh, versions of it, of course, but it's like a breath of fresh air for us to actually be able to speak to someone who um, seems to have some idea from looking at your tweets. Well, well, I mean, you guys have kind of gone through it with that whole Justin Sun in Broglio, you know? Uh, the rest of the rest of us watch that from the outside. So, uh, battle scars on your side, I guess, right? Battle scars, we certainly yeah, yeah, have that um, wonderful experience. In many ways, you know, I think we'll look back in the future and think it was a good thing. Um, but at the time, it was bloody stressful. Um, and we obviously learned a lot from it. And, and so it's, uh, without us having, um, let's say, invented decentralization ourselves we've looked at the experience we went through and how we got through it and been like oh actually this is why it worked this is how we got through it and this is what other people should be doing and then we look across the industry and we see many people have just completely missed the points and then you start realizing that a lot of these blockchains are actually centralized um and so yeah i'm, I'm just looking forward to the show to this and obviously i haven't seen some of your tweets and some of the things you're talking about especially with justin bonds um, it's just good to see that, that there's other people in the industry that actually get this. And uh, like I say, we'll have our differences, but I think generally we, we agree on most things. And I, I think it'd be good to discuss some of the nuances at, at some point during the show. Yeah, great. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward. It's, it's really interesting watching Twitter. Um, you know, I'm, I think I follow both of you guys. I definitely follow Dan because you see when someone is making interesting comments, you're like, okay, well, I, I want to see what they're talking about. Um, and I commented on Dan's post mostly because I think we had the same kinds of challenges. It's a, it's a real issue for us looking in the space and getting people to think about the fundamentals. And I mean, the Justin Sun experience, I guess it put you guys in one direction. But uh, for a lot of people post-2017, post-2018, you know, there's this sense that if, it's, uh, if two machines can run the software, well, then that's the goal, you know? <laughs> that's where we're at. That's where we're yeah. at. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what if Justin Sun owns both of those machines? You know, yeah. well, um, no, no, that's 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 not possible. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't actually have anything against Justin Sun. Uh, I'm not, I'm not anti Justin Sun. On the other hand, he also hasn't tried to, uh, <laughs> he hasn't tried to take over any network that I'm involved with. So, um, maybe, that's, maybe that's a good sign. Maybe it's a sign of um, the fact that you're doing something properly. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's more we're too small, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's nice to uh, have a chat with people who care about fundamentals. So, um, where did yeah, where yeah. did you where did you guys want to start, or you want to talk about the issues you guys are going through, or yeah, I think well, I'll just introduce the show. We've got a couple of things that we do with crypto that you can't really do with traditional Web two media. And the, the audience can get involved in earning crypto. So I'll just explain that briefly. Um, and then we'll do an intro. We'll say, hey, David. Um, I don't know if Tom wants to come on as well. Tom's, uh, he's actually making a movie of the Justin Sun saga, funnily enough. So he's, he, we've got him hosted here at the moment where we are locally. And uh, so he said he can come on and just listen in and, and make some comments as he goes through. Um, and it'd be good to introduce 
Sato a little bit to find out what your guys' background is, why Sato is how it is, and what it does, and you know, just explain briefly for the for the audience. Um, and then I, th I think we're just going to get into a discussion about what we think decentralization is, um, what conditions you need to be able to have a chance of maintaining decentralization. And that's the way we see it. And it's, it's actually a very deep subject. We, we're in the process of writing the book and we've gone through mechanically on, you know, systematically on all the different facets that you need in a decentralized system in order to make sure it remains decentralized. And very few people have done it as we, you know, if you go through it, you start to realize that many, very few people have managed to follow it through because they're chasing the money. A lot of people are chasing the money ultimately. Um, and so I think we can just discuss a few, you know, some of our views on that, why we think that's important and see how that aligns with what, how you think. And I think we might actually learn something from each other during the show. So, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I mean, if you, if you guys have a list, I've got a list and it's got maybe two things on it. So uh we'll we'll see we'll see how much overlap there is actually there might be almost complete overlap but uh, uh i think a proper definition of decentralization actually gets us somewhere so it's an important combo um what about yeah take it away no i mean we, we've got i mean cyto we've got a very uh i'd say we're a very left field project we have a very unique view of what the problem is uh, we think the scaling and security problems are primarily economic, not technical, but I'm sure that stuff will come out. And, you know, honestly, I'd rather we just have a good conversation, see where it goes. And, um, yeah. yeah, you know, uh, talk about the things that interest everyone. Yeah, I'm just making a quick note here. Okay. Let's do it then. Yeah, Matt, you're a little quiet. Who, me? If you could, um, yeah, compared to David. All right, hold on. Is that better? I'm a bit closer. Yeah, it's better actually. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, introduce the show and, and kick this off. Um, if everyone's ready, give me a heads up. Let me know if you're good to go. Yep, ready on my end. All right. Ready to go. All right, David. Okay. Welcome everyone to episode 100 of Community Token Talk. Um, we have on the show this week a special desk guest, David Lancaster from Sato Blockchain, and um, he has some very interesting views uh, that probably align with a lot of things that we've been talking about on how to achieve decentralization. And we also have some, I think, some um, minor disagreements, and it'd be really interesting to join the show to get into a good discussion with David about what we think decentralization is and how to maintain it, how to achieve it. Uh, and then any nuances that we've got, maybe we'll end up um, changing some of our views during the show. Who knows, hopefully. Um, certainly, I think we'll learn a few things. So uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention before we get started is that there is a Leo thread, which I've put in the comments of the show. So if you're commenting live during the show, or if you're making thumbnails for the show or memes for the show uh, in the Leo thread, uh, you can post into the Leo thread with your hive account. Then we can see that live during the show and we can upvote that and that distributes some crypto inflation to your comments so if you make some interesting comments you'll be getting rewards of between sort of five and twenty dollars during the show and so i don't know many other places where you can earn for listening rather than have to pay for listening um so yeah please uh, jump into that and take part and we'll be watching live during the show and voting your comments for your interactions and then finally um we think this message is very 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 important uh, there's many decentralization hobbyists but certainly dan and i and I'm, i think probably david as well um, think that this mess, you know, these messages are so important for 
humanity uh, so that we can maintain some semblance of decentralization going forward and some sort of uh, digital freedom going forward. That, yeah, please, please share this to your followers and let people know that we're having this discussion. Um, we just think it's very, very important for humanity. Um, so without further ado, let's jump into the show. I want to introduce, uh, well, they call me Dan. Say hi, man. How are you doing? Yo, doing good. Thank you. Happy to have you on, David. Yeah, all good. And uh, David Lancaster, uh, welcome to the show, sir. Good to have you on. Uh, any current yeah. thoughts or any initial things you want to say before we get going? Oh, no, a, a ton of stuff. Um, I hope it's going to be an interesting convo. Uh, I, I really echo what you said about the importance of it, too. You know, uh, 10 years ago, I don't think anyone was thinking it would get this bad this quickly with censorship and, and media echo chambers and stuff. So, yeah, you know, I think, you know, to, to put context on this, really, the technology when it first came out, we, we all had a gut feeling, right, sort of 10 years ago when we're all playing around with Bitcoin. We had a feeling that this is something, there's something here, right? And it's going to lead us to a different place. And I don't think anyone was quite sure exactly what that was. But as we've gone through things like the Justin Sun takeover, and I'm sure you've had plenty of uh, very interesting experiences yourself in the industry over the years, you start to co see concretely like this, oh, right, we did these things. And it led to the fact that now we're more anti-fragile in this way. Right. And I think a lot of it is very counterintuitive and a lot of it is things that you can't plan for. I know, I know a lot of the founders of the chains don't fully understand what they've built. But, you know, we, we take that view. Not that they're not. I mean, they're very, very, very smart people. But a lot of this comes around, comes about by happenstance and is very counterintuitive to the way human, the human mind works. And so as a result, a lot of people in the industry have gone down the, OK, pump my bags, number go up, let's chase some money. And, and a lot of people have made a lot of money. And OK, I guess fair play to them. But it's been at the cost and sacrifice of decentralization in many cases. So now, like, we, like you were just saying, we're at the point where it's kind of gone downhill so fast. And we're in a place where so many of these chains are regulatable by external entities and controllable and subvertible. Yeah, the, the, the analogy I throw at you actually is uh, it's one of the themes in Inception, uh, which is why we're called Saito or Sado. Um, it's the theme of people fall into the world and they forget truths that they once knew. And I think what is decentralization and what are we doing? What are we trying to build? Also, like what was new about Bitcoin is one of the huge ones. Um, and I mean, maybe if this provides a starting point, it's a great example because people turn decentralization into this word and then anything they can do in the name of decentralization, they think is achieving the goals. And it's like, look, you know, the Federal Reserve is decentralized. There are lots of versions of decentralization which are not decentralized, right? And it turns into a circular argument and people don't think it through. But there's so much money that they can get that they're just like, okay, you know, they throw anything against the wall. So, yeah, it's a it's a good starting point, maybe. Um, sure. I mean, do you, you guys said you had a really uh, extensive definition of decentralization. I'd say we've got we've got a one word uh, definition of it. Um, but my guess is there's a lot of overlap. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason we've got an extensive definition is because we've gone into the systematic details of writing the book about this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it, it's, it's funny because we kind of like initially started the book going, Oh, we've got to do this quickly and get it out. So, because that's the way things move in the industry. But as we've gone through it, you realize that there is almost no one in the industry that, have, that they've gone back through their chains and worked out why they are or are not decentralized and then being able to say, uh, yeah. Also, they are over. 
sorry, am I losing you? No, 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 carry on. No, uh, I'd say also it's um, the computer science focus is really poisonous as well because people think they're dealing with a technical problem and they're not. Maybe, uh, I mean, if you guys don't mind, do you mind if I just spend a minute and kind of throw our our structure for thinking yeah. about it at you and see what your response is? I mean, I think, we I think we'd all agree that decentralization in terms not of the, what the word means, but of what people value. It has nothing to do with topological distribution, right? Yeah. It's not like because the Federal Reserve is topologically decentralized. Gmail, Google servers, they're topologically decentralized. Amazon's topological decentralization. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, they forget about this. Um, or they assume basically there's something else that they want. And if you push them on it, a lot of them say, well, it's about power. And this is getting closer to the truth, right? Like what they don't want is they don't want to have someone in the network who has power. And most people I find who will make that step, like that's correct, right? Like you don't want Justin Sun owning 70% of the network if ownership of 70% of the network lets him start doing bad things. Um, but most people, I think, will stop there. And I think what's interesting, though, what we like to push people on is you can actually define it. It's like, what is it that we are afraid that someone with power will do? And this gets us to what Saito is really focused on. But, you know, I think it's just we're kind of trying to get a definition and give it to people. Um, what we're afraid of mostly is excludability. We're afraid of people not being able to participate in the network. They're excluded from use. But we're also afraid of people being excluded from provisioning the network. And both of those are of equal importance, right? Because if you can be excluded from use, but you can, if you can be excluded from provisioning the network, you can have incumbents who can control it and who can tax you because you can't get away from them. Uh, and if you can be excluded from using it, well, that's state censorship or corporate censorship. So um, for us, you know, people talk about permissionless and they talk about power. We find those definitions very abstract and we like to push people towards, you know, what you're really afraid of is a very specific type of abuse. And it's the abuse, the abuse that happens when someone is in a position to exclude. So we say the, the key property of the networks is non-excludability. Let me let me throw it at you guys. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, personally, I think it's a great point of view on it. It certainly meets a lot of the um, the definition that I would expect from a decentralized system. Um, yeah, I've not heard it put like that before, but it's certainly something that rings a bell in my mind. Um, so yeah, can't can't fault that. That same. What do you think about it, Dan? Well, yeah, I was one of the people that. Uh had their wallets stolen from Justin Sun directly. So I understand you don't want to be excluded. And yeah, I, it's the same same mindset. Um, trying to find your points of failure, your points of weakness, and exposing them, and then trying to find a way to mitigate or, or eliminate. You can't have a perfect, you know, nothing's going to be perfect. There's always going to be some attack vectors. Um, as long as you have a way to judo those attack vectors in your favor to where they don't destroy you that's where i think the game plan here and when it comes to consensus in general um, there's going to be different ways to do it and i think there's going to be different censorship resistant networks when 
I hear decentralization. It's very plain to me, and it's you said in an elegant way. I just say, you know, censorship resistance. Can can I be censored or not by one party, by one centralized um, attack vector? So the goal is, in theory, to distribute the power as much as possible. I'm interested to hear what you say because I think, you know, I may be wrong, but I think David, more of your debate is going to be, do we need consensus? Well, which is an interesting argument. I'm, I'm um, happy to I'm happy to push you on it. I but uh, actually, I I don't think anything we're saying is going to be compatible. Uh, compatible about consensus design because I know you guys are a DPoS network. I have no problems with DPoS. Um, I think there's a place for all sorts of different network designs, and I think in conversations, a lot of the time, people get really defensive because well, they've got tokens or there's value at stake. And for us, I mean, the real value for us is actually talking about the fundamentals because we want people. What we want the most as a project is actually we want people to understand what the hell we're doing, so people can come in and tell us how to do a better job with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if that makes sense for you, I'll push, I'll push you guys one step further, because if you remember at the beginning, I said, there's a value in having non-excludability, like censorship resistance is usually thought of as I'm a user. Can I join the network? Like I'm afraid of someone censoring me. And so we get a lot of network designs where they say, oh, look, we're censorship resistant. We're decentralized. But if you look inside it, they've got all of these incumbent attacks where the cost of the mechanisms that they've used to make things censorship resistance resistant is that incumbents have more power that can be leveraged to keep other people from joining the network. So they get in this trade-off land, but they try to avoid talking about it by selectively defining what decentralization is. Um, so this is one of the reasons we use the word non-excludability. Um, the second reason we use the word non-excludability is because it helps people understand that we've actually got this economic problem because non-excludability is the property of a public good uh, in economics. It's a good that anybody can enjoy, that anybody can consume. And really, if we're trying to build these non-excludable systems, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to build a data network that has the properties of a public good. And this is why scaling them is so hard. And I think maybe I'll throw uh, one more thought at you guys, which is a lot of the problems, people talk about decentralization. If we start thinking about decentralization as non-excludability, openness, then all of a sudden we can see something that the computer scientists and the people that have these complicated technical definitions can't see, which is a lot of the properties of openness in Bitcoin and other network designs do not come from topological decentralization. They come from volunteer provision. Yes. And yeah. people are people are confusing those two things. They're saying, oh, th because the network is decentralized, it's going to behave like this, this thing. It's going to be open. And it's like, no, no, it's open because volunteers are not for-profit actors. As soon as you ask a for-profit actor to provide something, the for-profit actor needs a business model. Yes. And this is something almost nobody in the space sees less easily, less than 1% is that the scaling challenge, we're trying to scale past volunteer provision. And so people are inventing complicated voting systems and voting mechanisms, but they're always undermined by the for-profit players who need to step in and pay. So we get things like Infura stepping in on, on, uh, on Ethereum. Um, and every, all of these large, large, scalable, scalable POS networks 
what they're doing is they're building commercial ecosystems with big moats around network layers. And that's why they're having this debate about decentralization. And that's one reason they want a technical definition. Because it's really hard to say you're decentralized if JP Morgan and Infura are running 90% of your network backbone. Go ahead. Can I just jump in? I'm loving this because Dan and I have been saying this exact thing for at least three years now. And it seems to fall on deaf ears. And it's so wonderful to hear another person come in from outside and say almost exactly the same thing. We, we believe in incentivized infrastructure where the infrastructure yeah. is incentivized by the protocol itself and it has a fair distribution model. Uh, yep. and we, we've built many different systems, specifically one called the Speak Network that is specifically for incentivizing infrastructure operators based on a certain amount of either work done or approval by the community or some activity that they can do that provides value mm-hmm. to the community, and then the, the protocol itself rewards that value. Um, th- this is critical. It's absolutely critical because ha- how, do you, how do you run a decentralized network where a good chunk of your infrastructure is not incentivized, and therefore you need a business model, which means you need to register, probably in a pro-regulation jurisdiction, it means that you need to have a business model that you can undercut so a bigger entity, a more centralized entity, a more corruptible entity can come in and undercut the competitors until they're out of business and provide free services until, oh, now you're all running, now you're all run, running your, your software on our infrastructure and, oh, the fees go up and, oh, you need to KYC and, oh, we need to regulate. Yep. Right. You know, this is, and no one sees it. No one sees it. We, we, I don't want to be too critical. Well, they're, 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 they're naive libertarians. Right? Yeah. They're naive libertarians who think that a voting system is going to solve the problem. And this is, it's one of the reasons, like, uh, you know, kudos to you guys for getting there. Most people haven't, right? Like most people, oh, it's the free market. It's here to save us, you know, because they're interested mostly in the token pumping and uh, someone coming in to exploit the network might create a nice bump for them, you know, a hype cycle. Um, but yeah, I mean, one reason we talk about it as a public good is there's the second angle that you just said. Um, and the second angle is like, well, why do fees exist? Most people think the fees exist to pay the users. It's like, no, no, the fees exist to incentivize, like exactly like you said, to incentivize infrastructure provision. Yeah. And we've gone through all of these naive cycles. Like in the beginning, before 2015, people thought if you pay the miners, the miners will pay for the network. And the BCH people, I think, believed that up until about 2017, because I was still hearing that stuff during the like the BCH BSB split, you know, where people are like, if you pay the miners, the miners will do this and the miners will pay for infrastructure because they want to get paid. People would say that. And it's like, look, actually, no, that's like saying the people that are putting their sheep on the pasture are going to pay for the cost of that pasture because otherwise their sheep don't eat. And again, it's the problem. Go, it's the problem with this technical mindset. I'll, I'll hand it back to you guys. It's just what they don't realize is the fact that you have a non-excludable good from which revenue can be extracted means you've got a public good problem. You've got free rider problems. You've got a tragedy of the commons. And so the scaling problem, how do we provide infrastructure? How do we scale it? It's an economic problem. The, the, the idea to me that there's certain blockchains that they'll incentivize the miners with inflation and then they'll have layer two systems where they're just like, bring your own node. Come bring a voluntary node. We work, but, and, and then you say, well, why, why are you incentivizing the main base layer miners, but you're not incentivizing the layer two system? 
oh, because they're going to charge fees. But then it's like, well, you're going to get undercut by JP, JP Morgan eventually. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's total pass the buck stuff. I, I, you see it with Dot too. You see it with all of these layer two terrapin parachain approaches, where it's like, okay, we're going to run the security infrastructure, and we're going to pay all of our miners and uh, our stakers with the fees that your parachains are bringing to us. And no one asked the question of, well, why the fuck? Sorry, guys. Uh, why the hell? <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. Acceptable language. On Sorry. Okay, why it, I feel strongly about this, right? It's but it's why why would anybody want to pay you fees when they could pay them to their own stakers, right? It's like this. Well, what is going to make our what's it, it, it's it's a public goods problem, and it's kind of like we're going to fix the problem in the commons by creating money that comes in from outside that's going to pay for us to grow grass, and it it just doesn't work, but. You know, it can pump a token and then the token can create a revenue stream from uh, senior edge, you know? Right, right. Which is what, which is what invariably has been happening. It's just, and, and, and it allows people to have this kind of cognitive dissonance where they're like, oh, we won't look over here, we won't address this issue. And you're a shit coiner if you talk about it, or you're against us, or you're a cultist, or you're, you know. It, it, yeah, and it, it feels like technical progress because the tech stack is getting more and more complicated. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the incentive structure, it doesn't really work, um, and it, requi it requires all of this VC funding model because no one is going to willingly go and build on this layer two parachain. Yeah. And so, yeah. and of course, the VC. I'm sure if you asked most people in crypto, are your chains VC backed? Are they funded and operated by VCs? I'm sure most people will say, "What? What's that mean? You know, what, is that a problem?" <laughs> so yeah, these dudes are registered in, in pro regulation jurisdictions, and they're going to do. Yeah. So you might as well just be operating on a centralized database at that point. I mean, I, I, I don't have a I don't have a problem with VC funding any more than I have a problem with retail funding. For me, it's just it's the sustainability of the model, right? And I think the big challenge for people who are focused on the fundamentals is you get these poisoned narratives, right? Like you get decentralization. It's just not defined. We get the same thing with the trilemma. All of a sudden, let the trilemma exists, or oh, the trilemma is solved, or oh, the trilemma doesn't exist. My favorite is the trilemma doesn't exist, but we solved it, you know? Uh, <laughs> so what, 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 this, this is an interesting point in the discussion, the, the, the scaling trilemma. We are fairly sure, because obviously there's various different extents of centralization and decentralization for the specific application that you want, you know? If you want to run a, a multi-trillion dollar finance network <clears throat> on a base layer such as Bitcoin, you need a very decentralized Panzer-San type approach because it's very secure. But if you're running text data on social media network, for example, yeah. you can probably provide the security at the sacrifice of a number of nodes and therefore get the scalability and the speed and the low fees or the fee-less system that you need, which we, we believe that we have on Hive. Um, and, and so it, the scaling trilemma never really run with us. It's kind of like a scaling trilemma is for a feed-based layer chain um, that is probably providing too much security for what's really needed um, at the cost of um, kind of I, I mean, I, I give it to you this way. I'd say cut security, look at decentralization and scale. Yes. Yeah. What's the... Those are the most important ones. Uh, hold, hold, hold security constant, remove it from the equation. What's the trade-off between decentralization and scale? Well, right, because I think... Well, I mean, I, I'm saying this because we actually, we have a very specific view of what the trilemma is because, yeah, I, like I, routing work does solve it. 
But it's difficult for people to see, I think, because like this VC poisoning of decentralization, it's very difficult. Like there are a ton of people who are like, oh, there is no trade-off. Or they start talking about the cap theorem or the FLP theorem, you know? It's like, well, Bitcoin, it's like Bitcoin doesn't. Oop, man, off your cut up for now. Just dropped off. Oh, that's a shame. Um, oh. let's, uh, um, let's wait for him to come back. Yeah. Uh, that's a good chat. That's a good chat so far. I really appreciate listening to, to David. Uh, I feel like we're very, very much aligned on many things. Uh, it's the first time I've seen a conversation like this in the crypto world, anyway. Yeah, it's just refreshing to have somebody at least um, on the same page in terms of where the ball should be going, where we should be building. Um, but I was looking forward to jumping in and talking to him about, cause you know, I'll really break this down in terms of, um, how we did it with hive and what we've learned from hive, because really we discovered censorship resistance via hive and what we've learned through all of it, um, as a method of, um, censorship resistant consensus. I, I, I want to, yeah, I do want to get there with it, but I feel like there's a lot of other interesting things to talk about before that point. Yep, agreed. Are you back, David? Yeah, I'm just loading in as a speaker. You, you, you were hitting the nail on the head too many times, David, and the system had to kick. In my Android phone, Android phone. Um, yeah, I was, I, I stopped. I'm like, guys, uh, <laughs> uh, we were talking about the trilemma. I was just asking you. I'm happy to keep going because these are, you know, they're not quite rants, but I think it's important. I was going to ask you. Go like, ahead. Go on time before before we. Have you got time? Like, because this this could turn into a three hour one, and I think it's going to be very interesting the whole way through. Uh, I'm happy to go as long as you guys are, and as long as it's uh, you know uh, well received by everyone. Um, yeah. And and I get dinner at the end. But um, <laughs> we'll definitely be doing that. Whatever that is. Uh, yeah. So before the restaurants close, I gotta we gotta wrap up. Um, I, I was going to throw the decentralization. I was going to say, look, we, we think we know what the trilemma is. And it's one of these reasons this VC poisoned narrative and tech confusion is a problem because they muddle the space. They muddle people's understanding in order to basically try to sell shit. And the decentralization scale trade-off, what I would suggest is if we look at it as a two-way trade-off, it's easier to see. And the trade-off is I've got a hundred bucks and I've got to pay for a network. And I've got a choice. I can pay for five really big servers, or I can pay for 20 kind of tiny servers. But I can't do the same. It's a budget trade-off that we've got a finite amount of money to spend, and we can either buy a couple of really big machines, or we can buy a lot of less powerful machines. And that's the state of the network. When we add on security, we're adding on a third cost sink, which is cost of attack. And cost of attack traditionally comes from the return on income that we pay to miners and stakers. You guys follow? Yeah, well, well we would even go further to say that there's a, you, you need the conditions where the, the cost of the attack actually enriches the rest of the community. Um, but we can get to, we can get to that, it's more nuanced. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say that's a, I, I'd say in terms of, defining the key problem. The main point that I'm trying to make is, I wouldn't disagree with what you said, it's just most people don't characterize it as an economic problem. Mm -hmm. 
but it's an economic problem. And so we see a lot of really silly things. Like there was a guy on Soul. He's one of these influencers online. And he's like, you know, well, Soul is great because the way we scale is by forcing a bunch of the people that are running servers to run more expensive servers. This solves the trilemma. And it's like, this is a person who has absolutely no understanding what the trilemma is, because if it's like, we're going to scale Bitcoin, Bitcoin by forcing the miners to run more expensive machines and servers, you are reducing the profitability of mining. If you are doing this, you are reducing return on investment in mining, you're lowering the amount of mining, right? Like they think they have a solution, but they don't because they don't understand the problem. They would argue that fees, fees go up. But then we would argue, well, now you now you are effectively a base layer network for the elite. You're not going to serve the common man. So well, well, here's another way of another way of thinking about that. I agree with you 100%. It's also why all of Ethereum's solutions to incentivize anything drive up fees, because we've assumed that the fee level is constant. We've said we've got an economic problem, and what they've found is they found a tech way to force people to pay more in fees. And they're saying, look, problem solved. And users are like, why is it getting more expensive? Now, the fundamental problem is you can't, in equilibrium, force users to pay more. Now, they've got a lot of creative solutions. My favorite is we're going to use MEV, minor extractable value, to pay for infrastructure. And it's like they think they found an out. You, know, you guys have heard this. You know, they think they found an out, but all they're doing is they're forcing fees up. If the fees for MEV go up, that means there's less money that users are willing to spend on on-chain network fees, right? Like you've got yeah. the same value from using the network. And if you are bled out through MEV, your willingness to pay the on-chain fee goes down. And so what do you do? Well, in equilibrium, you're transferring the fees from the chain to this privatized minor component. Security goes down. People, but people don't think about this, right? Because they have this, they, they don't understand the basics. They don't understand it's an economic problem. There is actually one, there's only one potential way to do it uh, within the traditional, which is the question of if you scale, can you increase the fees in a way that give you more security and more scale and more decentralization? The answer is actually no if you analyze it, but people don't want to analyze it if you get them uh, this far generally. Um, it's because the average fee goes down per byte uh, in equilibrium. And so you can expand the amount of fees in the block, but the amount that you've got to pay for every byte is technically lower the bigger the block gets. Um, so you can't, you can't escape that trap unless you're bubbling good, like unless people's willingness to pay fees go up as you scale. But if you're in that situation, you don't have a scaling problem at all. So yeah, you've already, you've already passed the scaling problem. Yeah, it's like the people will naturally scale the blockchain because it's way more profitable for them to do that than not to scale. So you don't have a scaling problem, right? Like, uh, yeah, anyway, um, I, I throw that at you guys is what the, the trilemma is. Um, yeah, I completely, I completely agree. Yeah. Do you want to get a shot at it first, Matt? Well, you can go first if you want, Daniel. I haven't spoken for a while, so please, please jump in. All right. Um... Well, we're talking about the scaling trilemma. Um, I really look at it as a line. You can't really say um, security and decentralization. To me, if you achieve decentralization, i.e. censorship resistance, you have accomplished a security issue, i.e. one just in a sun tech. And I look at it this way. Um, let's look at the tech stack first and make it to where it doesn't get too expensive to run. It doesn't exclude anyone. 
So the most important things, and really I've discovered this just over the years about how hives work. You need a place to store the text data and you need a transaction layer. You also need a stable coin, an algo stable coin. If your DeFi system relies on a centralized stable coin, eventually that's gonna become your backbone and you're gonna have issues. And these are things that are really hard to foresee just you know, creating this back in 2016 and how it's come across. So we went the route of layer two smart contracts. So it's like, in order to get censorship resistance, you need to be scaled. You need to have a fast, feeless layer so people don't have to batch data. If I'm a layer two, I can put my state directly on Hive and reference it however I want on the layer two. I don't have to be a data availability layer. I don't need to have the security of a layer one, I can just attach my layer two and use the chain in the way that I want to use it. That also means that the fees are predictable because you're using a layer two smart contract that you can even um, customize yourself. So when you look at it, the transaction layer is absolutely critical. If you have a stable coin with no fees, that means people in Venezuela, people in Ghana, people who don't have banks can actually access a stable store of value without a middleman KYC, Lightning Network, oh, we're in Africa. Well, no, a company is in Africa that can freeze your funds. That's not the future. That's just a terrible, terrible thing waiting to happen. This is true freedom, peer-to-peer. -peer. I can send you $1 HVD with no fees, no KYC. With the transaction layer being free and fast, you can now make this data availability layer an incentive layer, and you scale the layer one by virtue of layer two. That's what we do with the Speak Network. That means we store less and less data on the layer one text. We don't store anything heavier. And we incentivize it via the transaction layer in an autonomous way. So we put the state on Hive, reference it later. People prove that they're doing X work and they get incentivized by the layer one directly, not a centralized layer two company. That means you cannot break the incentive layer. So where Bitcoin went wrong, it says, oh, micropayments aren't as important so we can put them on a centralized layer. And that's gutting the transaction layer, putting on layer two, and that ruins everything because now you can't incentivize outwards. Your layer twos become centralized. Your base layer becomes unusable except by the elites. Um, I think it's by design how these things are working. But So when you actually niche it out where the nodes, because the nodes aren't that, we run a full node, and we run one when we were out of consensus. So you know, we have people in Cuba, Venezuela, um, Philippines, all over the world, able to run nodes on Hive because it's not an arm and a leg. You're not having the smart contracts. You're not having these fat nodes. And it's only getting more and more scaled. So it's where people are trying to lower fees and this and that, we're saying, look, we're past that. We're trying to get as much data off the main chain as possible. Use it as a ledger of truth, a transaction layer in which anyone, anywhere, can, you know, that's where Cosmos kind of went wrong. Anyone. You know, Ethereum could be a layer two, and I'll, I'll just call them smart contract layers. Ethereum could be a smart contract layer on Hive and, and leverage it. So it's compatible with anybody that wants to attach to it. So that's sort of um, my idea of the scaling before David jumps, just scale first to achieve censorship resistance. Just before David replies, I just want to make a couple of points there on what Dan's saying. One of the implications is that if you have a feeless layer one that's got nothing on it apart from the text storage, um, you, your layer twos can instantly clear to your layer one security layer. Um, so that means that they don't have to batch. Uh, and there's no, and by virtue of the fact that there's no fees on the layer one, and 
you get no fees on the layer one by having a you stake. So the more you stake, the more access to the resources of the chain you get. So you don't need to pay any fees. You know, I, I appreciate there's a cost in the network, but the user doesn't need to pay fees, and the people operating smart contracts don't need to, need to pay fees to clear. So they can operate smart contracts on layer two and clear to layer one. And so as a result, you have no trust on the layer twos because they don't need to batch. They can instantly clear. So now we don't need to trust the layer twos. And then the layer twos can set their own fees so that, so that if one of the layer two smart contracts goes crazy, goes viral, the cost of success isn't spread to all of the other smart contracts on you know, what traditionally is layer one change, forcing people to run smart contracts as well. Um, and, and I think one of the things is that the way to look at it is instead of saying layer one, layer two, we've just got a security layer. We've got a tech storage layer. We've got a smart contract layer. And they all operate almost on their own separate layers. But they clear, ultimately it ends up clearing to the base security layer, which is very lightweight and it just stores text effectively. Yeah, uh, I guess I can come in and respond. Um, the, the response I give is I understand why you guys are doing this. And I understand why you're uh, approaching things with a kind of a tiered technical architecture. And I think that the proper understanding of the scalability trilemma as an economic problem um, encourages that because it says, well, look, we can't solve the problem in proof of stake and we can't solve the problem in proof of work. So we have to have these tiered architectural approaches. Where I would disagree with you is I say, look, you know, theoretically, if you picture a network that solves the trilemma, there's no reason that you can't still have this layered approach. And there's no reason that you can't have this compartmentalized structure that you like. And all the, the, the things that I'm hearing you say are things like, well, you know, this part doesn't need this kind of security. Or we've got these five components and this component needs to have this property and this other one doesn't. The advantage of solving the trilemma and thinking about the trilemma abstractly is you don't, we want to solve the problems. We don't want to make trade-offs to deal with the fact that they exist. And the, the way Saito actually solves the trilemma is the only way that we know that actually does it. Uh, and route, it's, it's routing work. It's a form of security where the collection of fees is what the network pays for. And the reason it does this is instead of three cost structures, instead of fees for servers at scale, instead of decentralized fees and security, instead of these three cost sinks, you go down to two. You have the money that goes to uh, the routing nodes. And so the money that pays for decentralization also gets you security, it gets you cost of attack. And the technical problem that needs to be solved, the economic problem is why can't I spend money and then collect that money back because I'm a routing node, right? Like what, why is it mining? Why is it staking? Because it's supposed to prevent an attacker from spending money and getting all of the money back and then making block two, getting paid from block two, making block three. So, um, you know, my comments here, they're not critical about the deep DPOS network design that you guys have, but I'd push you and I'd say, look, if we're looking at an economic problem here. The fundamental question is, can we solve that three-way trade-off? Because if we can solve that three-way trade-off, any technical structure that you guys are building is going to be way more efficient with the money it's spending. And it's going to be way more scalable on every component layer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd say we shouldn't get distracted by digging too deep into tech. We should say, what is the problem? If it's a budget allocation problem, can we fix that? And I think the answer is that, yes, we can. 
Um, and this is one of the things, one of the reasons that we do try to push awareness of fundamentals is because we want to get people thinking about this. You know, if you've got a network that is at scale, your base layer security network, and it's doing $50,000 of income every day, you know, isn't it better to have all of that money go towards the nodes in the network than only a fraction of a fraction go to the nodes in the network because most is being extracted by miners and stakers? Yeah, I mean, I, I could I could understand that. That's appreciate that's appreciable because effectively, what you're trying to do is capture the value of the network. It's it's very simple, top level problem: capture the value of the network and distribute it to the value creators in the network. Um, technically, how you go about doing that? Yeah, of course. If you if you put it on multiple different layers, you may have some inefficiencies. Um, but at the same time, if you put too much on the we we would argue if you put too much on the base layer, you make the base layer very inefficient. You 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 potentially spread fees to places where they shouldn't be. And so we like to have a compartmentalized approach where one area of success, one area that's having success where fees might go a bit higher or costs might go a bit higher, doesn't affect other areas of, of the chain. And may, maybe this is solved by your routing um, technology. I, I don't understand that fully. What, could you just explain what you mean by the routing? Sure. I mean, here's, here's the problem, right? The problem is why do you pay for mining and why do you pay for staking? Uh, because you don't want someone to produce a block get the money and then they take that money it's like why can't you pay for why can't you pay for money this is what routing work does it's it basically it costs money to produce a block and so the way you produce a block is you collect transactions and when you have enough of them you get to produce a block uh, this is a very naive description because immediately people are going to think well why don't i spend my own money make a block and then I'm going to get the money from that block and I can spend my money again and make another block, right? Kind of like, what is the, why don't I rent hash argument with Bitcoin or why don't I rent stake? Um, so you've got to solve that problem. You've got a problem with people moving money in circles. And that's why mining and staking are reasonably secure ways of producing blocks because they're ways to guarantee the attacker cannot spin the money in, cannot spend their money and attack the blockchain and just loop it in circles. And the attack vectors actually in proof of work and proof of stake where this happens are the 51% attack, right? Like if you have 51% of the network hash, you can actually just spin money in circles because you spend your own hash. You can spend your money on hash. You put all of the fees in the network into your block and you get paid. Um, you, you guys follow me so far? It's like about what the problem is with moving money yeah. in circles, right? So this is this is the traditional problem that is preventing us from paying for what is fundamentally a value because the, the I, I totally agree with everything that you guys have said about we need to pay for value. But the question is, what is a value? And I think because mining and staking solve it by saying, well, we've got to pay for miners, we've got to pay for stakers. We're in an ecosystem where people like Vitalik will come out and he'll say, well, the job of miners is to mine and they're contributing value. And then other people put up their hand and they say, well, I'm staking, I'm contributing value or I'm buying the token and holding and I'm supporting the token price, I'm also contributing value. And they're not lying, right? You know, like everyone in the ecosystem is contributing value. The problem is, well, what do you wanna actually pay for? Because theoretically you wanna be paying the right amounts for everything, or you've got someone somewhere extracting value. And the challenge is with proof of work and proof of stake, there's no way to measure what is actually of value to the network. And so, 
if we're doing things like what Hive is doing, I think the technical approach where you end up with a reasonably complicated system is where you have to go because you need to have some kind of technical system that's kind of trying to figure out how much are we paying for bloggers? How much are we paying for bandwidth providers? Routing work doesn't have this complexity. Its answer is you always want to pay the people that introduce money to the network fees in proportion to the fees they contribute. So if, uh, you know, like if someone sets up a routing node and let's say they start running an application called Flappy Bird and Flappy Bird is, or Flappy Bird blockchain is the thing that people start using. And it's the thing that gets transaction fees into the network. You want to pay that guy. And by paying them, you are paying them in proportion to the value that they're providing the network. Because what's of value to the network is the fees that people are paying. And what's of value to people is the thing the network is giving them that is inducing them to pay fees. So routing work is fundamentally an argument about how do we define what is a value optimally. And it says, if you have a mechanism that can do this, if you can pay people in proportion to the money that they share, you solve the problem. And the issue is this introduces some security problems with the ability of people to wash money in circles. And what Saito solves with its uh, routing work design is it solves that problem. It creates a game that is profitable for people to play if they are making blocks with money that come from other people. But it makes it expensive, provably costly, if they try to spend their own money to produce blocks. Um, maybe this gives you a better sense of, of what we're doing, but it's also why we're very different than proof of work and proof of stake and why we're interested in promoting understanding of the fundamentals. Because a lot of people, they're trapped in a proof of work or proof of stake mentality. And if you say to them things like, well, you've got to collect fees to make a block, they immediately think, well, that can't work because if I could just do that, I could produce blocks. I could produce 500 blocks in a row. And it's like, you got to understand what you want to do. And then you got to understand the problems before you start to think about how to solve them. But um, how, how lucid is that? You know? Yeah, we're saying very similar things. Ultimately, you've got to get the value to where the value is being created. And how you yep. do that, there's going to be different models for doing that. Uh, yep. I think it's very interesting to hear that this is all happening on layer one from your side, right? Uh, it's layer one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you've effectively solved the when it comes to a um, crypto kitties going viral, and everyone else has to pay the cost of that to service their clients in their own smart contract that they're operating that's got nothing to do with crypto because it's all by virtue of the fact that it's on, on a layer one uh, smart contract system then everyone has to pay the higher fees whereas what you're saying is that sato solves that problem because the fees are going to the people where effectively where the load is on the system where the, where the, where the smart contracts are being successful uh, they can charge higher fees and collect higher fees whereas the rest of the people that are operating slightly lower load smart contracts on your layer one I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say quite. It's like a it's like a blockchain. It's a layer one blockchain. So the model ideally is Bitcoin. And I think talking about smart contracts complicates it. Like if there's a flappy bird use case and it's driving up fees and it's driving up transaction volume, that can still crowd people off of the network because we're we're still a layer one blockchain. We still have the properties, for instance, of universal broadcast on this chain. Um, in Dan's description of uh, 
Hive, for instance. You guys have talked about how well we've made an architectural decision to have the stable coin here and to have this network layer there and this other network layer there. So there are pieces of Hive where you don't have things like universal broadcast. You've got a data node that's storing data. It doesn't need to do everything. You guys are making those design decisions because you're trying to build this scalable architecture for what you're for the content and the applications you have. We're just looking at the underlying layer one network and we're saying, how the hell do we get the layer one to be as massively scalable as possible? So let me push you back right now to the original economic problem, because we said, look, scaling the layer one network, what we want is we want non-excludability and we want non-excludability without closure. So we want people to pay for that. And the problem with public goods and public good problems is that the reason people don't pay is because there's a way to extract value. I don't pay for infrastructure because if I don't pay, if, if I don't pay for infrastructure and nobody pays for infrastructure, I don't lose money. But if I don't pay for infrastructure and someone else does pay for infrastructure, I make money. So the, the reason we get uh, reliance on Infura the reason we get a need for these VC-funded companies to come in is because as soon as we step past volunteer provision, it's not rational because if you start pulling your weight, if you start doing all of this heavy work, you're generating income for someone who is going to exploit you and extract value and free ride. And that can be people who are staking the token and they're contributing value. They're going to say, oh, we're contributing value. It's going to be miners. And they're like, my job is to mine. We're contributing value too but they're extracting value. And so what solving this problem does is it means if you're a network operator running the network, you have to spend money on the things that are needed for the network to give value to that user optimally. So we're gonna get infrastructure provision. And this is where the, the trilemma issue with uh, scale and decentralization and security kind of goes away because we get security from giving the money to the routing nodes. So we don't have that third cost sink, and it's just that the network layer is more efficient because for every $100 that is spent on fees, for instance, we're now spending 50 of them directly on the servers, the ISPs. Does this make it clear, right? Like the, the comments that you have about value are dead on. Um, but it's not, just about, it's not just about paying one guy and not having them co-opt the network. It's about, we solve the problem so that the fees go to the people that are running the network. Like a guy running, Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, um, so there's, I see two different worlds here. I see um, both are useful. I think what you're solving is definitely, if you look at, so I look at this in parts. The reason is because we come back to, you know, my biggest question is who stores the data? Who stores your text data? That's the main question. Second question is how expensive is it to interact with that data? If it's a high fee, you're now centralizing the chain because nobody's going to be able to put data on it. They're going to have to batch it on layer two. If they have to batch it on layer two, they thus have to come up with their own layer one security all over again because that's an attack vector. Even for just one second out of 100, if they're vulnerable, somebody's going to exploit it. So we, we've gone through this from a very pragmatic point of view. If you jam everything onto one chain and the fees are too high, you can no longer have a transaction layer. That means you just screw 90% of the world because they cannot participate. 
you can't have a fee-less stable coin, which is absolutely essential. You can't just have a chain and say, well, we're not going to have a stable coin. Well, what are you going to rely on to pay people to incentivize outward? Um, so if you look at what the Speak Network is, it takes Hive and it incentivizes, because you say proof of stake, you say uh, DPoS. Um, Hive, you can say, is a, I, I call it a parameter coin voting. And it's not, you know, DPo if you say DPoS, you know, every flavor is different. You know, you, ha you have to have a long lockup. That means centralized exchanges can't power up and use the tokens. We have a month delay when you power up so we can see a centralizing amount that's being powered up from a mile away. Um, you need multiple forms of distribution. So it doesn't just go to one form and you have a red queen game where only the miners get it. Um, you know, I'm an advocate of coin voting. I believe there's other ways, but as a you know a fundamental layer, I think coin voting with reputation is very important parameter. But you also look at the second layer smart contracts and Depot. We call it Depot just for for sake. Um, Reputation-based voting has greatly diminishing returns because if you ask somebody to vote once, that's okay. But if you ask them to vote twice, they might not. Three times, you're not going to get it to do it. They're not going to do the due diligence to vote the right way. So. Proof of stake, unparametered coin voting is very useful there because now I don't have to worry about reputation. It's just stake based, and I can rely on the reputation of the layer one. I mean, I'll, I'll and then you also have proof of work I'll, with the Speak Network. I'll tell you why I prefer I prefer DPoS over POS, but it's for a different reason. Because the logic behind proof of stake is why are we giving the tokens to these people that are staking? Well, because they're producing blocks, and they are supposed to pay for the network, but they don't. So proof of stake by that logic, it's not really a very efficient way of getting security. It's much more centralized than DPoS. So if you're going to do DPoS is fine, right? It, it's a different argument. I find, the, I find the arguments about we can see things from a mile off, uh, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I think we're dealing with a non-excludable network. Fundamentally, we're talking about blockchain and permissionless designs. And if networks are non-excludable, then we don't necessarily know who people are. We can be voting on them, but we're exposing ourselves to incumbent attacks. Maybe, maybe not. I, either way, I don't think there's a fundamental solution here. I do think that your comments on text archive and data delivery are really interesting. Um, and I don't want to disagree with your approach, but I'll tell you how we think about it. We think about if you're in a network where the people that are taking your transaction from you are paid, meaning, if I, give it, if I give my transaction to you, you are going to get a statistical chance of collecting a fraction of that fee for routing it into the network. In this world, you are incentivized to do anything to get me to send you that transaction. So if we need an incentive for people to provide transaction archives, data storage, bingo, we've just incentivized that. Why am I using you? I'm using you because you're getting my fees because you're maintaining a transaction archive. Like Gmail, when I connect you, you will give me the last 500 transactions that I've sent into the network. Now, not all of those transactions need to be going on chain. I can cryptographically sign data, send it to my transaction archive. You can send it to other people in the network. So the economic logic of paying for fees does not force all value to be contributed over the chain. Um, there, yeah, the, no? the problem I would say, is, if I jump in real quick, um, the problem I would say is the fee in itself. 
is what's going to exclude 90%. If the fee is too high, you ruined a transaction layer. And then you also ruined a data availability layer. So you want to niche it out so you can have the cheapest transaction data availability layer possible and then push everything else to another layer. You, you see that's that, that that's that's a technical like mindset. The, the economic mindset is you want to optimize the scale of the network. And if you optimize, if you're optimizing for fees paid into network, you're optimizing the value of the network. You don't even need to ask these questions. You know, that's like saying, what should we be more concerned about? What the price of bread is or the GDP of a country? The answer is we want to care about maximizing GDP because if people are hungry, maximum GDP, distributed utility, the price of bread will be set optimally relative to everything else. Right? Like, um, what is, you know, I'm still having trouble because the high fee is what's going to prevent people putting data on the chain. That's where I'm getting at. Like, but you if don't, you have a high fee, you break so many layers. I mean, here's, here's a thought experiment. You know, so one of, one of the issues you need to solve to solve the economic problems is you have to have proper pricing for data on chain. And with the lack of proper pricing for data on chain, you get technical solutions like the block size cap. And this is a tragedy of the common situation, right? It's the incentives are totally screwed up. Miners will put data on the chain today because it is more profitable for them to do this and they can extract value by disappearing in the future because it's a non-excludable network. And that means you can't force people to stay around. So in any chain that is using a technical block size cap, all of a sudden we have to ask questions about what is the optimal blockchain fee? What is the optimal fee? Because what is the optimal block size? If you actually solve the pricing issue, you don't need to even worry about that problem because by solving the pricing issue and by letting market the market, the free market price per byte data that's put on chain, you don't need to care. What you need, what you need is you need the free market pricing it so it's optimal. Now, if there is, if base layer one is too expensive, that's fine. People can go to layer two, but what you want is you want the free market deciding when people make that jump. And one of the problems with, uh, you know, technically yeah. hard-coded systems like DOT is they make that decision for people. Like DOT, it was crazy. They, for years, they're saying, don't use DOT, don't use the chain. We don't want the data. And like that's not it's not really scalable um anyway i'm, I'm well the only issue is the fees are too high on the base layer you can't go to a decentralized layer two so you're kind of you're kind of screwed at that point no 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 of course you can because if you've got the ability to if you've got the ability to publish arbitrary types of data on layer one you can have spontaneously emergent layer twos you could do things like having round robin meta layer block production happening layer two where people are just periodically publishing data proofs to layer one and users move their money in into this by sending it to uh, uh, you know a cryptographic address on layer one at which point it's spendable by multi-sig users on layer two so layer one can emergently create these these meta layers in order to do this though we need uh, we need as you point out we need the ability for people to publish data on chain and again it's like this is why we want maximum scale it's why we need the fees going for network infrastructure instead of mining, because this is like a big data use case. Um, and people will need to be able to publish big cryptographic SIGs and on things like Bitcoin, where they're arguing about like 80 byte op returns and stuff. It's just not, it's not viable. I mean, POS is way ahead here, but POS, they're hard coding network layers, you know? So, uh, 
it's an, yeah. it's an interesting approach because mm. I think the approach that Hive takes generally to this is that it, it relies on stake. So it says, if you're staking more onto the base layer, you have more right to access resources. Um, and that gives you free transactions to a certain limit every day. Um, mm -hmm. And that that is Hive's way of dealing with that mechanism. So instead of the network deciding how to distribute rewards around the network based on throughput and fees collected, it's it, that right is given to the stakers basically. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 an interesting approach. I mean, they're both. It's very interesting here in, in the way you're, you're approaching this for sure. Um, but our argument ultimately has been, and it's very interesting, I'd like to hear about these spontaneous layer twos more. Because it really, it's kind of what we've done, but in slow motion. We've, you know, Speak Network, for example, it's, it, it, one of its main functions is to reward video storage. Because of course you can't store video on chain. So you have to have an off chain yep. of rewarding video storage. Yeah. And so in, in some ways it's a slow motion, spontaneous layer two that's popped up to reward video um, storage people. And then, Basically, what it, what it's doing is it, it, it references everything on the layer, layer one. It clears instantly to layer one. So you don't need to trust anyone on layer two. Right? There's, no, there's no batching of data. There's no batching of approval of rewards or anything like that. It's instantly cleared to layer one because there's no fee to pay. So as a, as a result, we have instant layer one trustability and security on the data and then the distribution of rewards is done by the layer two mechanism. Um, right. It's it's. Uh, I mean, what? That's, that's what I'm saying, but it's in, it's in slow motion. But I've, I've not heard of um, spontaneous. The, the, right. So. The, the well, the fundamental difference. The fundamental difference is you guys are trying to build a very practical, scalable system for content creators that is based on a POS mechanism, and we are a radical departure from both proof of work and proof of stake. Um, which is why we're having this conversation, right? I, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good conversation. Like what's going to win? Is it, and not win, like what is actually going to be more useful? Is it incremental gradualism around tech or is it actually going to be a radical departure with, we've got to price data better? I think it's an open question. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's yeah, I think anything that can achieve censorship resistance are going to find each other. So that's what I'm saying. There's because. Hive isn't just a coin voting, right? Because it has proof of work on the speed network. It has what you call POS on layer twos. It has what you call DPoS on the layer one. Um, we have the algo stable coin of transaction layer, all these things. Yes, but if there's something else out there floating around that's censorship resistant, there's no, re what would happen is the communities will come together. Because if you're not BC funded, if you don't have, you call it centralized funding. If you don't rely on centralized funding, and you're truly looking to have decentralization or censorship resistance, you're going to find each other and you're going to find use cases and you're going to say, oh, you can store this, we can do this, we can take this load off. And that's sort of what happens. So it's so scarce right now to actually find true censorship resistance or projects that are heading towards decentralization that um, I think, you know, Hive has a lot of practice. Um, we've been in the wild a lot. We've rebounded from what would be the most devastating attack. Um, so there's a lot to learn there, and there's also scalability solutions that we don't have the centralized funding to build. Like there's a lot of things you can do. Here's here's to a question. Reduce the text data on the layer one to see case snarks. The ninety percent. I mean, so. here's a here's a question though. Aren't you guys excluding Justin Sun? For sure. <laughs> yeah, any kind of uh, centralized attacker. Yeah, it's a centralized attacker. It's not a it's not a, a, a benevolent operator. 
Uh, okay, so I mean, here's here's something that's interesting because I think fundamentally there's different challenges. Uh, like with routing work, the mechanism that we have, if you add inflation, it's not secure. You know, because if you're adding inflation, you're basically you're charging someone. You're saying any money you put into this block, if you put the money in yourself, you're going to lose more than that. If you pay the fee with other people's money, you're going to make it. So as you add inflation to the mechanism, a routing work mechanism, it gets insecure because the, the inflation can pay people more than the losses that they're forced to suffer from the mechanism. So one of the fundamental differences between routing work and proof of stake is that routing work has to be zero inflation, but it doesn't have a block subsidy. So it's kind of like a flywheel that's strategically hard to spin up because how do you spin up transaction volume? Most networks, the answer to this is let's have a block reward, let's leak out the money, and we're going to use this to incentivize activity. You can't do this with routing work. On the other hand, a lot of the problems that you guys don't necessarily conceptualize as problems, you do solve. For instance, routing work is the first mechanism that doesn't have a 51% attack. What this means is it doesn't mean you have solved the FLP theorem, doesn't mean you've solved the CAP theorem. What it means is that orphaning work is provably costly if you do it with more work than you naturally get, right? Like if you collect 51% of the transactions for the network, you can profitably produce 51% of blocks, but you can't profitably produce 55% of them. And so the, the reason we kind of push on security, and I guess the thing I'm hoping you guys maybe will take from having me on is that there are these other uh, mechanisms and they're, they are fundamentally different. So I'm also very curious, uh, you know, looking at things like Hive, how does this distributed structure work? And I think a lot of the software and use cases will cross over. We're hoping that one of the things we can get going on Saito, if you visit, you'll see we've got uh, Twitter kind of clone, a social media site. We've got a bunch of games. We're looking to integrate other tokens. If there's a way to integrate with Hive, that would be wonderful too. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, let me uh, just before I slip someone. Um, I really like the consensus, like you call it consensus or your security mechanism, how you, you're trying to game theory away to where people aren't going to 51% attack. Um, the thing is, if you're getting, because Justin sounds like a mini state attack, like a mini government attack. Um, there's theories out there he was backed by. Um, you know, a government, I don't want to get into it, but he had pretty much endless money towards our small ecosystem. And they will, nothing he did was profitable. So, like, if the people can, they, they'll lose billions, they'll burn billions to bring you down if you're, if you're doing something they don't like. Um, what we found at the end of the day in practice, right, and this isn't something you can really theory, theorize. When shit hit the fan and it comes out of the blue, whatever attack vector was leaked, you, you generally don't know until you're attacked. Um, what we relied on the most was the reputation that you can't buy. The years and years we've had of knowing these validators and knowing that they're trustworthy. And when we were able to pivot, we were able to do so in a very elegant way and rebound almost like a skeleton was the, the reputation system that we were able to use as a backbone. Now, a lot, of, a lot of things you do in theory go right out the window in practice. It seems elegant in theory, but when things are on fire, you're going to be like, look, there's like, 90% of the stuff we didn't need. We just needed to do this. This was actually the most, you know, this was the ladder out. 
Yeah, uh, so I think I, I would I wouldn't disagree. But but um, but that's also saying that this mechanism is not using consensus for security. That we're using social security, right? Like that's what ETH falls back to. They say if we're fifty one percent attacked, we will socially slash socially slash tokens. There's nothing wrong with that approach, although it does raise questions. If that's the security mechanism, and we're not paying for critical infrastructure, why the hell are users paying fees? Right? The difference between ETH is they're not, ours is voted. We vote as a community on our validators. It's not just I power up and I am who I am. So it's like, there's people who are ahead of me that have less stake than Yeah, but I mean, just, uh, theoretically, if, so the community if, if, them if we're talking about an attacker with essentially limitless resources, we're also dealing with an attacker who can theoretically rent or buy stake, right? Because it's, it's exactly. right? That's, so that's, like I'm, I'm not. That's where it's really good for the community when they're attacked to enrich them. Right. Because if you keep getting attacked, like on proof of work, when you fork, you have to keep exhausting resources that you don't have. But if we got, for instance, he had a pre mine that he got to buy. Now there's no pre mine, so he had to go buy it off the open exchange. It would immediately launch us to a top ten coin. If he did get centralizing stake, we can see that. We can say, hey, who is this person powering up a centralizing amount of stake? we're going to investigate as the validators. And I think that's personally perfectly reasonable because the game we're trying to play is no one can control us. So if anybody for any reason has a centralized amount of stake, it is considered an automatic attack vector. That's why we don't let exchanges vote with user funds. That is an, that is a, a, I don't know. I don't know how you can be non-excludable and know what the exchanges are and whose tokens they're holding. Let me let me give you guys a different example, because here's something I really wish other chains would look at. Um, so maybe you can think about this and think maybe there's a way because it's wonderful. We've got this technique we use called automatic transaction rebroadcasting. Um, this is the bit of our network design that seems most popular among Bitcoiners. I'm really surprised people are not making a bigger deal of it. What happens is there's a certain percentage of the block reward that every X number of blocks, it happens every block, but you're only eligible for it every like 100,000 blocks or whatever. If your UTXO has not been spent, you get a fraction of the money that is being spent to produce blocks by the block producer. So the block producer, part of the fees, they're collecting transactions from users with fees. So if they're attacking the network, if they're a Justin Sun, if they're a CIA, if they're a government, they're Either they're limited to the transactions that honest users are spending. And if they're doing that, well, they're limited to producing 55% of blocks. If they're not, if they're attacking the network, they're spending their own money. That means they're spending their own money and they're giving tokens to the other users of the network. And it depends on how quickly they're attacking. But what you've got is you've got the attacker paying for the privilege of using the network. That's kind of what so. Would that raise the fees very high on the base layer? Uh, I mean it. It depends on what the so it depends on what the existing fee level was. If the users responded by trying to outcompete the attacker, the attacker would theoretically be forced to increase their fees. So you could have a hemorrhaging, bloodletting of the attacker. But here's something that's really interesting. Over time. This does two things. One, it means if you can't make a transaction, if you are being excluded by someone, the person who's excluding you is paying you for the privilege of it. So if Justin Sun comes and attacks Steemit, or he comes and he attacks Hive, 
the rest of the community can step back and say, well, you know, I'm actually okay with this for two weeks because in two weeks, he's going to bankrupt himself and I'm going to be twice as rich in network tokens because his attack is literally going to give those tokens to me. Um, so this right yeah. now on Steam. Steam's actually going through that right now because Steam's still operating and people mm. you know, just in Sunny's paying for the privilege to keep yeah. half the market cap of high who can barely get keep his fingers to it. Um, yeah. To, to maintain some face, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that must be costing him. An, a, first of all, well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, it's costing him an absolute fortune to pay out the people, to pay the rules to people who are scamming the network. And then secondly, He's constantly having to buy up more and more of the tokens as they sell to him. Yeah. So we, we, we anticipate at a certain point he's going to have, well, I think we, we might already well have 80, 90% of the supply of Steam. At a certain point, it's a completely centralized system. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and this is, this is the other advantage of routing work. Um, we've already talked about how there's no 51% attack. One of the reasons for that is that as the attacker, they need to have tokens in order to continue producing blocks. Now, one thing that happens is, uh, if they have a majority of tokens, they can maintain an attack for a limited amount of time, but they're transferring the tokens provably to other players. So as you mentioned, their, their holdings of the tokens actually shrink over time with ATR. And what that means is gradually they're forced back into a minority position. So uh, it's the first network that kind of, it's the first consensus mechanism layer one that has this property. And it contrasts with like, you know, like proof of work where if you've got 51% of mining power, well, you can just force whatever blocks you want on the network and you collect all of the fees in those blocks and you expand your stake. Um, so yeah, just ATR, you guys might be interested in looking into it. I'd be really curious. Uh, I'd be really curious how it would work in a POS system. Um, what, um, I have an interesting question. Um, what, so what would happen if the an attacker bought up as many tokens as they could, say mm -hmm. no? And they distributed them across many wallets or became, you know, they, they civil attack the network, basically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's going back to the pockets, but it's going back to their own pockets. Well, and they just raised the fee as an attack vector to get people censored off the network. That's the, that's the security challenge. It's like, well, why? The question there fundamentally is, look, if I'm spending my own money to make a block, we don't need to, you don't need to think about what if there are 500,000 wallets? What if there are 200,000 wallets? What if there's one wallet or two wallets? You say anyone who's attacking the network, assume that they are the attacker and assume it's their own money. And one of the things that happens is the realization, one of the, the fundamental reason that routing work solves this is that we've got something called a routing decay tax. So if I make a transaction and I send it to you two guys and you send it to someone else, so we've got two hops, you guys are much more likely to be able to produce a block than the people you send it to because your first hop. So it's one hop further away. And if the money does not come from the attacker, but the money comes from an honest user, it is going to hit the attacker deeper in the network. The attacker is going to be deeper in the network for that subset of transactions than at least one honest node or user. So fundamentally, the reason that routing work is able to discriminate is it says, well, look, you know, if you're first top routing work, you're going to be able naturally to produce the first block 50% of the time, 60% of the time, because you're going to, you're going to outcompete everyone else on the efficiency of fee collecting for these blocks. But when you make the blocks, you're not reducing the amount of work that exists in these other mempools. And 
you can't stop them from then coming out with their own blocks. Um, and it's it's this routing tax fundamentally that allows us to impose the tax on attackers because when the block is produced, uh, we have a costly hash game and the costly hash game decides who gets paid. And it's not just the attacker who can get paid. So if an attacker is doing this, there's two options. Um, the first option is they spend all of their money and then all of the fees in the, in the block are theirs. And then they play this hash game to unlock their fees. Cyto works where you make a block and the money is locked up. And then if in the next block, we find a mining solution to unlock it, we use the randomness to pick a routing node to pay. And the people who were not the block producer are more likely to get paid. So the first option is the block producer says, all of the money's mine. I'm going to do this hashing algorithm. And what that means is they're burning their own money. The only way to avoid losing money is to actually put transactions that have fees from other people into your block. And the problem is that if you do that and you're deeper in the network, you're adding these routing hops that belong to other people. Uh, they either belong to this sending user, because if the user hasn't sent you that transaction, it's kind of like you don't get any of the payout from that transaction. It goes right back to the user. Um, or you're adding it from someone in the network who sent it to you who's a first hop or a second hop. And in that case, those nodes are eligible for payout. And the only way, and by adding that transaction, in, in other words, by trying to make the block profitable for you, you actually add statistically a greater chance that the entire block will go to the routers who represent that other transaction then you will statistically collect by putting that in the block. So it's a mechanism. Go ahead. A question. Um, so what is there an expense here to operating nodes or get or gaining yourself an account such that the attacker couldn't embed themselves, you know, weeks or months before and multiple dozens or hundreds of accounts or thousands of accounts across the network so they can be on the second half and mine themselves tokens? Well, what are we? Well, we're not mining tokens because we're zero inflation, right? We can't have inflation because if you have inflation, uh, you know, you're, you're making it costly to produce blocks with your own money and then you're giving out free inflation that removes the cost of attack. So there's no inflation. You resources, right. Well, here's a question. It's what happens if an attacker gets 80% of the first top routing nodes on the network? What actually happens? Well, what actually happens in practice is the attacker can produce 80% of blocks on the blockchain and they will outcompete anyone else producing those 80% of blocks. Um, but unless they are, if they're not, if they're, you've got two options. Are they allowing others to contribute blocks or not? Because those are kind of two different attacks, right? Like there's the orphaning attack where they're just not accepting transactions from other people. And in that case, you get things like the ATR payout where, well, okay, what they're doing is they're forcing, by not letting people make transactions, they're actually putting them in the box that get payouts. So they bleed out through the ATR mechanism in one mechanism. The other is if they're not accepting these transactions from other people, well, okay, instead of $100 per block, now there's only $70 per block, right? But the cost of hashing has been set at 50% of the block fees. So instead of spending, instead of getting, uh, you know, instead of spending, their costs of unlocking the fees are statistically higher than if they cooperated with others. So there's a certain point where it's not an efficient attack, basically. 
Well, it's it's civil proof. We've got a maths paper on it, but what, that doesn't mean you can't do it. What it means is it's guaranteed, you're guaranteed to lose money. Yeah. You know, so this is one of the interesting things I think about the POS designs. You guys are really designing for safety because you want to have, you've got a technical system, I think, that can be incumbent attacked. And your argument is, look, if we make this complicated, but we make it as transparent as possible, we're going to have a heads up if Justin's son tries anything. And the routing work approach is, well, actually, we're trying to be really theoretically foundational about this and solve the problems on the informational level. We succeed, but the result is the best we can do is actually price an attack. So we yeah. can guarantee you that an attacker will lose money, but we can't guarantee that you're going to know about it. You know, but what we can guarantee is like, well, if the State Department attacks you, they're going to be paying you. Yeah. You know, it's. Yeah, the, the the big I see attack vector here where it's you know some has eighty percent of the funds and they're denying others from getting access and then let's say they create they they raise the fees and then they create a centralized layer two maybe and they say hey you can use my outlet I won't charge fees I'll take the hit because I'm J P Morgan it doesn't matter it'll be a write off you can and you KYC through me well, well, you you can you like can that. work through it right if the attacker is raising fees they're burning their own money faster right like. This is, it, it's one of the problems getting people thinking uh, about the fundamentals with routing work is people go back to this proof of work and proof of stake analogy. And they think, well, well, you know, I can manipulate fee levels. It's like, well, you, you can't manipulate fee levels because what you're doing if you're contributing more fees to the block is you're burning more of your own money. Yeah, but some of these actors don't care about that. They have all the money that can be write-offs. So I'm assuming well, worst case scenario. Well, well hold on, hold on. When we money. say money, we're talking about network tokens. And they don't have all of the network tokens in the world because there's zero there's zero inflation. So, you know, you can try to use the USD. You can print all of the USD you want to buy uh, the Cyto token. That would be like printing all of the USD in the world to try to rent stake from someone in five. Right. Like there are some designs where that's in every design, you're going to have this problem. However, in not every design, you have the uh, advantage that the person who's doing it is guaranteed to lose money. And I think theoretically what you should do thinking these problems through is say, if someone is willing to sell their token to the attacker, just count them as an attacker. Right, because you know yeah, exactly. But I mean, a lot of people are willing to sell to the attacker, or the attacker just slowly accumulate over time. Right, that's that's, um, that's why you want to solve the fifty-one. It's why you want to solve the fifty-one percent attack. It's why it's a it's a good strategic thing to to focus on, right? Because uh, we don't need then we don't need to be distracted by does the attacker have thirty percent, or does the attacker have seventy percent? What we can say is the attacker is going to lose money at this rate, and if they're being forced to bleed their tokens off to the people who aren't selling them to the attacker, then, okay, it's maybe it's going to take three months for us to get Justin Sun out of the system. But it in three months, it's going to be possible. And maybe the community puts up with that because the consensus is a very, very effective way of distributing his money fairly to everyone in the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I would say the, you know, the way we approach it is um, just fork, right, with your reputation system. Um, we already have a very long, reputable trail. If someone new came in and tried funny business, they would lose their, they would enrich us, and then they'd lose their money because we forked them out. Sure. Just like Hive has proven to overtake Steam, and that's just become a money pit to Justin's son. So it proved that, you know, even with a pre-mine, now with no pre-mine, it would be 
that on steroids if you could even accumulate that much because it's a red i, I get it you say inflation is bad um i think there's good use cases especially if you have sinks so if you have a faucet with a sink if you have layer twos that lock up hvd which is hive essentially and you have a little bit of inflation for the security budget but also to distribute stake that's the thing that proof of stake this you know you can't call it deposit it's so much different than just enriching yourself because you're incentivized to give tokens or coins to new participants. So the idea is the brute force network effect. Um, well, this is this is where my comments about governance were coming in because for us, governance is always an attack vector and mechanisms like this. I think you cut out a little bit. I do agree that consensus is always an attack vector, but you have to have consensus. It's something that you can't have anything perfect. Um, you need updates. You need to have come to common agreements on how the code is upgraded, the path taken forward, um, how the incentives work. I think um, I think um, this is an interesting conversation, but I think there's there's so much more we can talk about here. And I think basically what we're agreeing on is that there's different ways to do this. Hive's um, provably shown that it, um, it it will end up making people money on the return, um, and it seems to me that. The Sato approach is to focus more on losing the attacker money and waiting them out, right? And both of those are probably fine approaches. Um, exactly. Don't throw the baby out the bathwater. Like, I mean, they all have their flaws, but at least we're trying right. different right. things in right. different directions. Right. I think both can have merit, right? We just, with Hive, we plan for the absolute catastrophic worst. And maybe that won't happen. And maybe, you know, cutting that off, that doomsday scenario off and saying, well, we're going to go this way makes it a little bit more efficient where we went the long route and saying, well, you know, what if the attacker has infinite money? Um, yeah. And I also want to talk to David, not just about the, the security issue here. I, I want to talk about the industry in general and, and how we how we get away from it, how we get out of this, what he thinks it needs to happen. Um, we've got our different approaches as well. So I'll wait for David to re-request. Um, we're getting some weird dropouts. Like VSC was just in the room, and they they obviously have some interesting stuff to say, but they've just dropped out. Um, but yeah, David, just just final final comments on this governance issue. I want to I want to move on to, to other things. I think I don't know if you heard, but we've we've both obviously got slightly different ways to deal with attack vectors. And you know, you, it seems to me that your way your way would be to to wait out the attacker and see if you can get through it um, and cost them money. Our way would be to cost them a bit of money but fork away from them. I mean, I don't think there's I don't think there's anything in routing work that prevents social slashing. Uh -huh. So I we don't think of it as a substitute. It's more as can we strengthen I think cut out again for me. The speaker again. It's only the billion dollar app Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's frustrating because I I I do want to move on here. We we we've touched on governance, it's a good good conversation, but there's a couple of other things that I think would be really interesting to hear from David, and I think we've got a lot more in common there. Uh, yeah, I think we exhausted yeah. it, but um, it's good. I mean, yeah, good and, you know, but things are, I'm, I'm very interested in in finding out more about this routing work. I'm very interested in finding out more about these um, uh, spontaneous layer twos as well. And you know, it's piqued my interest for sure, and I'm always interested in hearing different approaches. So definitely. It's all good. I mean, we're just saying, like, we, we appreciate um, your your views on this and definitely interested to find out more about um, routing work, definitely interested to find out more about these uh, spontaneous layer twos.
But I'd, I'd like to move on to a slightly different subject here. I, I think something where we've got, um, well, it'd be interesting to hear views of people outside the, the hive ecosystem. Um, so we're kind of in this place in the industry where there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. You know, we, we, we agree on many things and I think, I think we have it right. Like the, the foundations, we have it right, you know, uh, more or less. And there's obviously different ways to approach the governance attack model, attack, attack vector. And, you know, I, I, I hope, sincerely hope that Justin Sun is considering attacking your chain and you can find out <laughs> and see what <laughs> My only hope with Justin Sun is that he doesn't stop funding Poloniex uh, in the <laughs> oh, next right. next three months. Because I right. still use that, that guy. That, that's another angle. You know, the, the, the delisting percent... I, I, I genuinely believe that as people find out, you know, if, if the chain is as censorship resistant as you say it is, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, then there's going to be a certain point where exchanges will start delisting. I think they'll be pressured to delist and remove liquidity. Because the whole point is, if you can remove, remove liquidity from a token, you can collapse its value. Um, and, you know, getting our tokens on as many of our own decks, our own community operated decks, and other, other community operated decks as possible is what is one of the secure security issues there um and we're obviously working on various different mechanisms to create our own liquidity back into btc but is, is that something you guys see and, and that you've worked on as a, as a potential attack like team so I, I wouldn't say so i mean you need to the fees are paid in the network token and that the relationship of the network token like in proof of stake and proof of work you need the market demand for the token because that's what's buying, mining, and staking. And if you don't have that demand, then security drops because people don't want to mine and they don't want to stake. With routing work, it's the fee that's attached to the transaction. And, you know, like the, the relative rate of that price to another currency isn't necessarily clear. Like if the, if the value of the token really drops, Network service providers could say, well, we need more of it to pay our infrastructure costs, so we're just not going to accept lowball transaction fees. And, you know, users would just have to pay higher fees or their transactions wouldn't go on the network. Um, at the same time, if there were providers out there who were willing to make blocks, well, that would indicate for low fee, that would indicate that the costs of including those transactions is profitable. So I don't think we'd have that attack vector, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we're not uh, we're not well understood. I would say point out that we're a very small chain, so I don't think you guys would consider us decentralized in practice um, because we only have a few servers. You know, um, our challenge is bootstrapping and growth. Uh, one of the things we're hoping to do is by getting other tokens into the Sato ecosystem. Uh, other communities can kind of drop by and people can slowly understand the fundamentals and we can get a discussion that, uh, you know, helps people understand, like, where would you, why would you want a Sato node? And one reason to run a Sato node, for instance, for Hive might be that people want to use Hive with the applications on the network, Yeah, you know, yeah. like that's a really good reason for you guys to be sending transactions to a Sato node is because it runs a bunch of Hive infrastructure, you know, we so... We are, and on the flip side, we're the same as well. So we have different yeah. apps we run, but we are making them multi-chains we speak, and we're rolling out, very close to rolling out various different ways. You can log in with various different chains. Yeah. Post without, like, for example, you could log in with your Ethereum account and post to the Hive chain without paying any Ethereum fees. 
um, and st stuff like that. You know, so I'm very interested in cross-chain. Uh, you know, especially when the chains share the same value. Um, so, you know, I can see, you know, things like Sato integrations in the future. I'd love to have the ability to post my Hive account to your Sato apps as well. Um, so we're very open to that. We're not, you know, we're chain agnostic. The only reason that we, 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 on we just need you guys to want to play the Sato games with Hive tokens. <laughs> one, one of the things we're doing is uh, distributed gaming. I think you guys are mostly social media and blogging. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. We've got like Splinterlands is one of the biggest games on. on yeah. Last four years, it accounts for about two million transactions a day. Wow! Yeah, it's we, Hive's like between fifth and third highest transaction blockchain every single day of the week because of mm. um, so we like gaming, we like social media, just any, anything where there's like microtransactions going on. It's perfect. Yeah, and certainly I'd lo I'd love to see people logging in with their Sato accounts to Hive apps and playing games and mm. posting on social media and vice versa. I'd like to see the opposite. What I'd really like is I'd like uh, I'd like Sato to eventually start paying for infrastructure for other chains. I think that's where we integrate. Because if you are using a Cyto application that uses Hive, yeah. there's a reason for that node suddenly to be running Hive infrastructure, right? Like, why is someone running that server? Why are they providing the transaction archive? Well, it's because if they do that, they can identify your IP address. You make the API request to them. They'll give you the data. Why are they doing it? Well, because when you're using this subset of applications that interface through Cyto, they get paid. So it's kind of like providing Hive infrastructure becomes the, the expense that is helping to secure the Cyto network. Because it's what the Cyto nodes are doing to convince people to use them instead of this other guy who doesn't run this infrastructure and can't support these apps. So well, since, you know, we, we would agree that we've, we've been working on something called the Speak Network, SPK Network. And yeah. Very similar approach in that we, Dan and I have run an app called freespeak.tv for a while, and it's a video app. So we, of course, we can't store the video on chain, so we need to be able to distribute rewards to people who provide video storage infrastructure and also CDN and um, encoding infrastructure. Yeah. So we've built the Speak network to use Hive as the base layer. Um, the Speak network is kind of, it's not even, a, I wouldn't even call it a layer two, it's like a layer 1.5 or something that kind of integrates with Hive accounts and then yeah. Out the infrastructure operators. Now we, we're doing that because we know that people will pay for improved services for encoding and video. They'll pay for improved services and content distribution via the CDNs. They'll pay for yeah. If, if there's any content they're passionate about, they'll pay to store it. You know, or, or store it on other people's behalf. Well, I mean, we we're we're very far from being able to kind of non-theoretically speak about this. At least I think two to three years. Well, but on something like a routing network, the monetization angle there is that you are sitting between the hive, the hive committing of the transactions and the users in this case. So the transaction fees, you guys should be eating a portion of those or collecting a portion of those. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it seems to me that there's definitely potential for integration there. Um, I'll check out, check out the Speak Network as well from your point of view. It's, it's primarily focused on video infrastructure, but there's no reason it couldn't be adapted to others. And then maybe there's an integration with a, with a Sato network in a similar way because I think ultimately we're both sharing the same values in that we, we, we see very clearly that you have to be able to reward infrastructure operators autonomously via the chain for based on the value that they provide. And the mechanism through which you do that can vary, but um, yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate that we've got these. No, it's, it's really good. I mean, what you guys are doing, because so few people are actually trying to focus on infrastructure where their assumption isn't, let me parasitically wrap my arms around a big VC 
and find a way for them to fund the infrastructure that will play into this hype cycle that we can then collectively dump on retail. That's yeah, you, you know, you know, exit liquidity. You know, it's it's um, one of the things that I think is important. Here, I wouldn't say that we're anti VC either. It's just if you get a VC involved very early on, where the price is low and they they're, they're a registered entity, they're going to abide by laws of whichever government that they're they're in in the country of, then you do have an attack vector there where those those VCs can can take over. But then it's like, well, well how do you mitigate against that? You guys have got your way of mitigating against it. We've got a way where. You know, if they if they power up and start voting, we have a month delay on the voting, and we can kind of see that ahead of time. Um, and there's a various other, other other approaches, of course. But I, I, the point that I want to get to here is that as a as a community, as an industry, so few people even see this, you know. And it's it is frustrating in the industry to watch the industry go on down the road and and not be able to address these points. And I mean, for me, it's just refreshing to have a conversation with someone that gets it. And uh, and is, is doing you know putting your money where your mouth is and, and doing something about it in your own way. Props to you for that. Yeah, well, well, thank you guys. And uh, I I assume we're getting to the end because it's getting near dinner time. But uh, you know, thanks for having an open-minded discussion uh, as well. Um, yeah. I appreciate the opportunity to you know tell you about some of the things we're doing. I really encourage you to look at automatic transaction rebroadcasting. Um, can you after, after the show? Can you post a couple of links in the Twitter space and in the comments to, to these things so we can take a look? At yeah, them? yeah, abso absolutely, for sure. Well, be before you go though, I, I do want to I do want your thoughts on where the industry's going, right? Because you know we, we've clearly got this basis and we've got this situation where very few people are having these discussions. We appreciate your chats with Justin Bonds as well. Again, we have our dis disagreements with some of the solutions he's, he's, he's going down, but we don't fundamentally disagree. You know, there's and that's where I think that we, what do we do to bring the industry into a place where we're all on this base foundation assumption, which so few of us are currently on, you know, rewarding infrastructure, um, uh, having decentralized governance mechanisms that are very difficult, if not impossible to take over, um, staying away from centralized supplies and registered entities controlling your chains and things like this. That we need to get the industry to that base assumption. And I'm happy for us all to compete on the nuances that you know, how we apply the nuances and how we solve the nuances, um, and and we you know made the best chains win there, and maybe we all integrate each other's chains and technology and, and have fun like that. I think that's the way I see the future. That's where the future has to be if we want to have a semblance of digital freedom. Um, but I don't fully. I mean, we've got our solutions as to what we want to try to do to encourage people to move across to these technologies. But what do you think that we need to do? What do you think needs to happen in the industry to? kind of give it a, a wake-up call to, to get people to realize what's going on? I, I don't know. I think we've got really different challenges. Um, I mean, you guys are trying to, you guys are kind of in, in POS and it depends what happens with that. I think the big challenge that a lot of mature networks have is that they are dependent on hype, speculation, and inflation to drive the incentives that drive growth. And then after a certain amount of time, you got problems with that, right? Like you can't, can't inflate anymore. Um, I, I don't know how much this is describing you guys. I see it with a lot of the bigger networks and a lot of their game are token lockup games, Ponzi games. And I think POS by not solving the fundamental problems actually kind of encourages this because it leads to these really complicated layered designs where stuff can be hidden or incentive games can be played. I, I don't know how, I don't know how to solve that. Um, I think the networks will just get better and better at policing value extraction. 
And we're going to get things, and that's going to require governance. It's going to require closure because that's in, it's, it's an economic problem. If you've got permissionless value extraction, you got to privatize the commons. And so I think that's the world that you guys are in. And maybe there are better and worse ways of policing value extraction, but I think that's the big challenge for you guys. And I think you're doing it in a space where the people who are driving hype cycles do not have an interest in these discussions. For us, it's a radically different problem because we have a radically different solution, but we don't have, in the absence of public understanding, we don't really have ammunition for hype cycles. So our focus is on building applications and trying to talk to people about the fundamentals. So, you know, it's why I pinged you guys, you know, it's like Dan's post. It's like, well, there are actual, you know, there are devs out there. There are people working on things fundamentally. It's my biggest frustration actually isn't with the crypto community, it's with academia because, uh, and particularly distributed systems type, because the people who should be assisting with this are trapped with an, a bad understanding of the problem. And that goes right back to the decentralization angle. Like people genuinely think, well, governance is the solution. And well, maybe it is. But well, interestingly, you talking, there's a guy, there's a gentleman in the room called Steve Trost. He is um, effectively the main advocate and very, very senior in the University of Oklahoma. And he's very well connected with various people and authors in the industry. And slowly but surely, some of these ideas are getting tabled in front of some of these yeah. ideas. Well, we've got a, we got a mathematical paper, uh, a, a simple proof of civil proof that demonstrates that routing work is provably costly to engage in if you're spending your own money. So if, uh, Steve, if you're listening, take a look at it. Take a look at the routing work consensus because we think it's a revolution. It's very difficult for us to talk to academics. Um, like, I'll give you one example. We spoke with one before. Uh, it was about two weeks ago. I had an email exchange. And we mentioned that, oh, you know, you can you can make headway against the 51% attack with this. Uh, the reason for that is that state transitions become provably costly. So previously, one of the reasons you get this, uh, people say, you know, like the 50%, one of the problems is, if you have 50%, if you can propose half of the state transitions, you can always deadlock a system. If you have a mechanism that is actually civil proof and it's provably costly in the network token, someone who has 51% at block 80 will have slightly less than 51% with statistical probability at block uh, 85 and block 90. And as soon as you can start assigning this cost of attack, um, like, you could the, the state transitions become costly and the base assumptions that the systems can be perpetually deadlocked at zero cost disappear and all of a sudden these fundamental assumptions in a lot of the 1980s proofs about uh, distributed systems come back into question right like you can't uh, the cap theorem and the flp theorem don't fail because it's expensive with a certain statistical probability but that's the same shift that Bitcoin had, right? It's not that the chain can never be reversed. It's that the chain won't organically reverse without a certain statistical probability. So there's a lot of fundamental ideas. Um, if there are people who are into these issues, we would love to get them engaged. So uh, yeah, please take a listen, take a, take a read. I'll share some links on Twitter. Please do. And the other thing as well is I think that we, we need to identify, we need to better identify people like Justin Bonds, ourselves, yourself, um, Chris Black to an extent and there's a few others in the industry like we, we need to work together more to get these ideas out there 
Um, so you know, it, it, people need to be open. Um, I mean, the thing with Justin is Justin was scarred by the BCH wars, mm -hmm. you know? And so he's fallen into a mindset, I think, where it's got to be a big chain and it's got to be VC funded because anything that's small and organic is going to fail. I don't, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's wrong. Maybe he's right. Well, um, this is the thing. None of us know if we're right or wrong, really. It's we're just trying to do the right thing, and we're putting mm. our mouths are and, and putting it all on red. Well, I've, I've seen I've seen Chris Bleck uh, on Twitter. I think I know who you're talking about. I mentioned Seto briefly, and he's like, "Well, I don't know any devs who are using it, so not going to think about it." It's like, yeah. "Well, okay, you know." But I don't know when you guys got into Bitcoin, but I'll tell you that you know, back in the old days, you know, dismissive approaches. The reason that Bitcoin is special is because it actually solved a problem. And uh, I think that is actually the wrong attitudes of Chris. And maybe that's one of the reasons that people are moved in the wrong direction. You know, like it's one of the big challenges for us with Justin We and in the conversation. Like he, he says at one point, he says, oh, well, you know, there's got to be 51% attackers somewhere. We say, well, where is it? Uh, to date, no one has found one. And what I find really interesting is that we can say this to people who say that they're oriented on fundamentals and they just kind of let it pass by. Like, I'll repeat that. Nobody has found a majoritarian attack vector on routing work. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. astonishing. Uh, we'd love to have help analyzing it and thinking through it. And I think it's important for POS and POW as well. Um, because I think routing mechanisms can really strengthen infrastructure funding and other approaches. That's, that's what I'm interested in. You know, if there is, a, if this is, obviously, this is the first time we've really gone into this in depth. If this is genuine, then we can, and we'll take a thing about it. Then we're always building new technology. We're always kind of expanding, and definitely would be interested to see how that that fits into mm -hmm. consensus models that we build in the future and cross cross chain integration, all that type of stuff. Definitely interested. Yeah, um, I, I think I think we we have a bigger problem though, and I think it's the the lack of understanding of this in the industry. And I feel like we need to be doing a dual attack where we're building the technology that we think we that we believe in. That, that yep. Use, but we also absolutely find a way yep. to get values out there. Calling people the, out who are blatantly um, pursuing avenues that, are, that that completely go against these values, partly because they're so they're so um, counterintuitive to most people. Um, part is part is definitional. What you guys are doing with your book, I'd really encourage you to think about non-excludability, because as soon as people think about it that way, it opens up the problems. We're trying to build commons, right? We're trying to build things that are non-excludable, but where people, if they have access to the data, they can extract value. That's the problem. How do we have openness if people can abuse the system to extract value permissionlessly? Um, so things like your, your book, your definitional arguments, getting clarity on that is of vital importance. I think the applications are also really useful um, because it gets people to think. And it also, it helps people understand what's a real project and what's just, you know, vaporware. And maybe maybe there's a space for you to write something in the book, and maybe we're, we're going to try and do it with some academics as well, and get a bit of the paper, you know, published published by academia. Um, yeah, if you send it to me, I'll criticize it. Yeah. This is what's wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I think the other thing that we can do as well, and you know, maybe Sato Network does this on its own, maybe it does it in conjunction with other different networks. But I think one of the things that um, is going to be interesting to see, especially with the chains that have done it correctly. On the, fun, on, on the foundational layer. When they start dropping tokens to other chains and creating applications for them, but they exclude the centralizing supplies, they exclude the initial um, capital injections that happened kind of unfairly in, 
therefore exclude the ability for the governments to step, step in and regulate these things as unregistered securities. Um, I think that's going to be a very interesting time, certainly an angle that we're going to take over the next few couple of years. Um, and I think that may wake people up as they receive pre-value and realise that their VCs, founders and owners didn't receive the pre-value. They'll be like, oh, you know, what, why is that important? And it's like, well, yeah, that's the point. They were supposed to start off with zero tokens and earn the tokens, you know, like everyone else have to, or buy them on the open market. And that's why they can be regulated by the government. That's why the government has a moral right to regulate them. And it, this, to me, is the very def It comes down to the very def this definition, this wishy-washy definition of what a security is. No, it, if you if you were able to give yourselves tokens or your friends or your colleagues or people who bought the tokens off you very cheap early on, and then later you're going to use people as exit liquidity. And I think a lot of people are doing this unintentionally as well, but they're just... They're still it's, yeah, it's, well, it's also abuse. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I remember, you probably remember too, you go back to like 2016, 2017, where Bitcoin forked essentially into the BTC and BCH camps. And then Ethereum came along and there was all of this fun activity happening on Ethereum. And then I noticed that both the BTC and the BCH people got into it. And what they did is it was the developer communities monetizing their followers on on BTC. So you started to get things like the BCH community was promoting like Spice Token or something. And then BTC started pushing a bunch of other things too. And you know, it's one of the one of the big challenges, I think, actually with POS. So it's more more substantial criticism of governance is I think governance leads to dependence on a centralized set of devs. And I think one of its key values is that when you have a central set of devs who's tinkering with everything and building complexity, you actually have a good case for governance because it's one of the only ways to have effective pushback, right? Like if you don't have a governance system, you don't have a yardstick for what constitutes abuse of the community. And I actually think this gets to Justin because I don't think Justin has enunciated it, but I think that's what he's really concerned about with governance because he's got a fund that is buying and selling kind of late stage altcoins. And he just doesn't want the token supply to be massively inflated. And so he wants there to be some really complicated and time-consuming process for doing it so that the devs who are managing these projects, because they're all horribly centralized, they theoretically could. But if you create a governance system, then you've got some kind of obstacle in your, in your way. And I think that's what he really values. But I think it's difficult for him to talk about that. Um, and I think he actually does confuse it with governance for promoting hard fork upgrades. And personally, I don't see the value in that. Like if you can't, if you can't get a coalition of the willing for a blockchain upgrade, what is governance doing? Is forcing people along for the ride? Like, I feel like in many ways, we need a coalition of the willing of the various blockchains. <laughs> what is a terrible analogy. I was doing it tongue in cheek. Uh, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I get it. You need to get I, I just don't want to, don't want to, page and then we can as a joint force go you know go call out the other chains and start making a making some noise i think that's but we've all got to kind of get on a fairly similar page foundation which we already are to an extent but then everyone's got their own nuances like you're saying with this well it's it's the advantages of applications right like um will i'll take a look at splinter lens i'm going to take a look at what you guys are doing i'm going to take a look at three speak tv and you know if there are ways to integrate that make sense, that's great for us. Like we would love to be, have our network and our games and our apps of more use to Hive users. You know, we've got like a social media site. If people want to come over and we can make it easy for them to buy and sell and tip in Hive, that's a win for us, of course. Right. Um, for, 
and you know, like likewise, I think interoperability on the other side, it's going to require Hive users taking a look at the applications and saying, actually, this is okay. I want to get involved too. And you know, so maybe this is how we do it. It's decentralized, applications-based, utility-based, where people say, and maybe where this stuff, because it's a labor of love, it outcompetes, you know, VC shitcoin. That's the other route. That's the other route, right? It's like, you know, I've mentioned dropping tokens of value to other people. I've mentioned us talking about um, getting a coalition of the willing of the, of the, the radicals and blockchain on Twitter. <laughs> We're now going to be accused of being warmongers. Yeah. Uh, well, we are. We're, 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 yeah. Otherwise, we lose our digital freedom. And, and the whole world uh, Assange is for me. Assange is in jail. That was the. Um, that was the uh, yeah, not the wake-up call. That was crossing the Rubicon. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, that was the the explicit violation of the right to publish and discuss right. government documents. Well, well the, the, we're, we're not against this in, on Hive because we we, yeah. we are publishing text to a base layer that we believe cannot be censored. At some point, we got some feathers are going to be ruffled. Then we've got the ability to do anonymous accounts, and we're going to see what happens. It's going to be very yep. anonymous, uh, anonymous non-excludability, or at least at price. If you're going to exclude someone and they pay more money, then you're going to have to bleed out more yourself too. I like that. Not yeah, we, we would probably call it more censorship resistance, but that's because we're a text-based publishing. You know, that's the, the problem. The problem with censorship resistance for me is that it's bait and switch because it it's correct. Yes, we want censorship existence. The problem is people then say, look, we're building a censorship resistant chain and they forget that part of non-excludability is equal rights to join in provisioning. And we can like in your system, you're kind of like, well, we can kind of see someone coming from a while. There's nothing wrong with that approach, but it, you know, it allows for incumbent attacks to be quietly moved away because, you know, if you're making it difficult for people to join the system, then when you have let Justin Sun in through your defenses, so to speak, you've got to have a social forking because that's the only defense you've got left. And so it complicates discussion, non-excludability. It's like, look, you should have equal rights to use, but you also have to have equal rights to provision because that's how you fork out someone who's an incumbent. Um, yeah. yeah. I understand that point. Yeah, yeah. I think in, in practice, in practice, we've we've got our mechanism that we use and it's worked for us so far. But again, like I say, I'm always open to new ideas. I'm open to integrating those into any new technology that we build and maybe even some elements of this getting integrated into a high thought later. I don't know. You know. We'll have to see what the community decides. It's ultimately down to the community. The, the beauty of this is it's ultimately down to the community to decide where it goes and what it does. Um, and so, yeah, just these discussions are important because we have to spread these knowledge. You know? And if there's a genuine idea here that can be integrated, then I'm sure it will happen at some point, you know, obviously a few years down the line, but it's, it's, if it's genuine, legit technology that, that works, then I'm open to, to hearing about it. Um, I, th I like something else that you just said, that, um, and I agree with this. I, I think what's really going to happen, because it, it's messy, you know, it's not, I hear Sato's solving an elegant problem. It's an elegant solution. It sounds like an elegant solution. Um, and it seems to be that. But it's, the war that we're fighting is messy, you know, and I think one of the, I think one of the things that we're really going to have to focus on is how do the people or the chains, the communities that share the same values as us, come together and by the way it seems that those chains just by happenstance also have most of the operation operating applications right that are genuinely operating without a load of bots and high fees and people are actually using these things it's 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 very quiet it's underground it's sort of ticking away there at the moment but they have 
genuine communities of people that understand this stuff and they're posting and they have genuine applications that are operating. When we start cross-posting and when we start cross-integrating, your network effect goes up massively. And at a certain point there, that's going to be one of our main tools and weapons to attack this from. It's like, well, we're going to kind of come out of nowhere with, especially if we start cross-posting and using each other's applications and integrating each other's technology into each other's applications. That's one of the attack, that's one of our attack vectors on the system where we've got to make it as easy as possible to integrate each other's technologies into our, our own applications. So they become aut autonomous applications, you know, and they've got various different options. You can log in, you get the benefits of SATA if you use this account, you get the benefits of Hive if you, that, if you use that account. There's tokens over there that you can earn on the Hive ecosystem. You post on this application, there's tokens over there that you can earn on the SATA ecosystem. You know, it kind of becomes this mishmash base layer of ultimately multiple different base layers that have got their own very variation of either censorship resistance or um, non-excludability. You know, that's what we want to see. You know, and at a certain point, it becomes so hard to attack the whole thing that the, the system can't do anything but integrate it. <laughs> you know, as a speaker again. Yeah, you're on. That's really well said, man. Really well said. I think um, the idea is use cases always rise to the top. That's why HBD adoption has just been skyrocketing without any real marketing, any centralized marketing. Um, if something's useful, people are going to use it. And if it can help each other, then all these protocols are naturally going to absorb each other. I, I agree. I think that a lot of people also in the space, there's a lot of talk about marketing. It often comes from people who don't understand how it's done on big chains and how they're kind of eaten for lunch. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Utility is should be the number one focus of any serious dev team. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen straight away, but we'll take a look at this and maybe someday in the near future, we'll have the ability to log into our applications and say to accounts and maybe some of your applications have the ability to log into hive accounts and they, you know, yeah, I mean, if, if you guys are doing video storage, I mean, it's key, key, man, key accessed, I guess. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure will be cross-portable regardless. Right. So, well, yeah. It's, it's a completely autonomous system, so it's not really tied to Hive, apart from that you have to have a Hive account to use it, because we clear to the base layer, right? Um, but there's no reason that you guys couldn't use that, or another application couldn't use that, that's outside of Hive, to incentivize people with Hive accounts to store their data. And it's not just video, it could be any any file type that you want to store. It's all like, it's just incentivizing IPFS storage. Um, and, yeah. and what that does for you is instead of you guys having to build, because this has not been easy, it is spaceship level technology. You know, it's taken us a long time to get this right. It's a proof of access system. Um, <laughs> Come on, man, you're, you're in the blockchain space. You got to have people saying, hey, why wasn't this done last Tuesday? You know? <laughs> yeah. well, well, someone comes out with it. our dev team for years, but you know, you got to yeah. Push it. They're like, come on, man, my cousin put a token out in two weeks. How could this take you any time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so th that could benefit you guys where you haven't built that system yet, maybe for yourselves or integrating into your own blockchain. But the, the, the Speak Network, is, a, is a, it's an independent system. It's, we didn't have a pre-mine or an ICO. We don't believe in, you know, we, we're having to earn our tokens from zero on day one like everyone else. There's a lot of people in the ecosystem that we dropped the miner token to on Hive that have got a lot more tokens than I do and, and they haven't done a single day's worth of work on the ecosystem because it's a genuine decentralized drop. Um, and the main governance token is being mined from day one at zero. And we're still, we're still in testnet. We're just about to go into the main. 
Sorry. Here's one here's one interesting idea. I don't know if you guys do video streaming or something. We're thinking about decentralized Twitch because we're looking at Twitter spaces. You guys have been really tolerant. I keep using my phone and it keeps dropping. But we'd like to actually kind of get this shifted fully peer-to-peer. So we're trying to think of ways to do that. And one way is maybe, you know, uh, just peer-to-peer nature of video streaming. So um, we, we already have um, two streaming apps on Hive. One's called Vim TV, the other one's called Oreo One. And they have talked a lot. We haven't got round to this yet, um, just resources. But they've talked a lot about building a separate node for the Speak Network. The Speak Network's operators can just spin up and run. And it's a live streaming node. And we probably only need six or seven around the world, really, to be able to get a live streaming network up that is actually decentralized uh, to an extent. Obviously, the more nodes, the better, but live streaming nodes are not cheap to operate. Um, and then the question I mean, is, one, one, one possibility there is uh, actually doing the peer-to-peer stuff. So if you've got uh, 20 first hops and then you, every browser can service another four people, you could kind of, you could kind of get a decentralized video streaming application that way. I, if you guys could mention in the Twitter comments, those two sites that you mentioned, I'd love to take a look because um, yeah. video is hard and video is really high value. I think it's also costly and it's tough to monetize. So it's a really good, uh, it's a really good place where, like you know, Twitter they're not doing video spaces. And I, th- my guess is, is the cost structure. You guys would know more than I would, I guess. Video on demand is costly, but streaming is like next level. It's really expensive. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously not knowing your technology until today, particularly we've heard of Sector before, but we, with the Speak Network, we. We are incentivizing content delivery networks, nodes. We're incentivizing encoder nodes to encode video technology. We're um, incentivizing storage. So we have an incentive mechanism that works there. Some of it's based on proof of work. Some of it's based on uh, a parameter coin voting witness system. Um, some of it's based on uh, um, subscription payments to the service to get improved service. Um, some things you can do proof of work on in a, in a, lo- in a low node way. Some things you just can't. Um, the next question is, you know, the next evolution. It's it's a, it's a few months or years down the down the line, but it's can can we use the technology that um, Vim has created, open source that, get other people to run the nodes, make those nodes compatible with the Speed Network. People will pay for that service, and now you've got a payment in, input, so you can create a sustainable, market-driven token price for uh, live streaming, and you can already you can use the existing Speed Network infrastructure that's built to plug into that and now all speaking network operators can run live streaming nodes. Um, well, I don't think all of them are going to do it. I think very few of them are because it's really very high throughput money wise, but it can be done. Well, it's, it's why we need to, it's why we need to get away from volunteer provision. And it's, it gets right back to your definitional problem, right? Where we need to shift to commercial provision without losing non-excludability. And the problem with people who think it's primarily a technical problem is they don't realize that the free market adds excludability as the cost of provision. So you guys are in that delicate dance. You're like, well, we're in this system and we want the values of the system. How do we do it? Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully as Cytoscales, we'll be able to offer you at least part of a solution. Um, like you like you say, it's, you know, it's hard work uh, day on day. I appreciate, uh, I'll check out what you guys are doing and I appreciate the genuine interest too. Um, yeah. We're here, like call, call on us for... Any conversation you see on Twitter that you need another person to step in and say, yeah, this is the right <laughs> I know. Like, drop me I got my there. army now. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll try and, if you're, if you're yeah. to me that you're fighting the same fight that we are, 
you, you have very similar values to us. So we should be uh, cross-posting more and linking together more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best, and I will. Uh, I will take a look because you know who knows. Maybe there's a small way to connect. Our biggest issue with partnerships. I'm sure you guys get pressure on that with hype cycles and stuff. We just don't like to do it if it's not something that we can actually do. Um, but in cases where it makes sense, and you know, we're happy to put resources in to help promote stuff that actually drives utility in both directions. So uh, you know, I'll be taking a look with that in mind too. I mean, I, I wouldn't call it a partnership. There's, there's no entity here. There's no entity. To no, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't shitcoining. I was saying, uh, in terms of looking at what you're doing and seeing, it, are there ways that this is of value to the stuff that we're building? We, um, are, we are here. We support very similar values to you. There's very few of us in the industry, and it, and if you want to have our freedom in the future, we, we really need to uh, cross cross pollinate a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I just want to bring in, I know you probably want to get off, but let's, um, if you've got a few more minutes, I've seen BSC ask a few times to speak. BSC are our layer two smart contract system. Um, so they're very smart guys, uh, they're very uh, active devs. So quickly, BSC, if you could just ask, either ask your question or make your point, I'd be interested to hear what you thought of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, can you hear me okay? Because my I didn't work earlier. Can hear you, yeah, can hear you also, yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so I'm just I'm just curious, what constitutes routing? Um, you mentioned that term a bunch, but I, I don't I don't I don't really know what that means in practice. Um, could you give me a better example of how that how that plays with uh, the Sido? Uh, routing work is basically if I send you a transaction, I'm a user, your node. If I send you a transaction, um, routing work is the act of getting that into a block. So if you can put that transaction into a block, then uh, you've got first hop routing work. If you can't do it, you're going to be competing with other people on the network to get that transaction into a block. So you're going to want to send that transaction to someone who can get it into the block as quickly as possible. So you send it to other people. And if those second hop nodes can get in a block, then uh, what we say is we say the transaction has routing work in it. The amount of that is needed to produce a block depends on what the transaction fees are, how many hops it's gone into the network. Um, and so routing work is both the work that's needed, the collection of the fees that goes into the block. And then when the payout happens, um, your eligibility to claim that depends on, again, what the transactions in the block were how many people were signed up, uh, how many people routed those transactions into the block. So that's what routing work is. It's doing the action of getting the transactions into a block. And that work is then for the users, what the users value is getting the blocks and getting the data back out from the blocks. So routing work is basically um, the challenge is securing it. But what you're paying for is you're paying for the operations of the data infrastructure in the network. So the activities of taking transactions in, putting them in blocks, and then getting that block level data back out. And again, it's the, the security challenges. How do you do this? You're driving work directly from the fees. Um, you know, proof of work, proof of stake. There's this external market like hashing or staking, which is expected to make it expensive to get 51%. Because as soon as you get 51%, you can do whatever. With routing work, we can't do that. And so what happens is there's a costly lottery that makes it expensive to attack if you're not using your own money, if you are using your own money. Does that answer the question? A little bit. That gives me kind of at least an idea of the, the routing itself, but not, not so much of the, um, 
broader implications. Uh, think think of it this way. If you, uh, if, if you are a first hop node and you put a transaction from a user in a block, you are the only one with routing work in that transaction. And if you're the only one with transactions in the block, you've got 100% of the routing work in that block. So you've got 100% of the payout as the routing node. You're going to get the routing node from that block because you're the only one who's put transactions into it. And all of the transactions you put into it, you, uh, you're the first top node on that. You can start seeing how routing work is different than proof of work and proof of stake by playing with this example. Now, one thing you're not going to want to do is you're not going to want to have multiple identities. Cyto is civil proof. Routing work is civil proof. Because if you took that work and you sent it to another node on the network that you control, you're now putting transactions into a block, but you've got two hops. And the fact that you've got two hops means that you're going to need to spend a lot more money to produce the block because there's a routing decay. So you're now producing work as a second hop node. That's not as efficient as a first hop node, which means that when the payout lottery happens, you're putting more money in and you're going to be burning more money. Um, so your losses are greater if you're producing as a second hop node. Um, if you send the money to someone else, let's say you send your transactions to Dan because Dan can help you produce a block. You want to get those transactions to Dan as quickly as possible because if you, when the payout happens, the payout is going to, if it's two hops, you're going to get 6% chance of the routing payout. Dan will get 33. There's a decay function on payout. What happens is the decay function on payout uh, is more punitive than the decay function on work. Um, but what this means is also you're not going to want to send to someone in between you and Dan. Because if there's a third party node, your chance of payout goes down. You, you go from a 66% chance of payout to a 58% chance of payout. And then the second person is sitting in the middle. And so what we're really doing with routing work is we're paying for the efficient routing of transactions into blocks, right? So one way to think about it, one of the reasons we talk about decentralization and why the property that matters is non-excludability is because you are incentivized to get your data, those transactions to anyone who can help you get them into a block. But you don't really have an incentive to profligately share them with anyone who is inefficient. So routing work promotes efficiency. One of the real big questions that we've got as an industry thinking about this is, well, are we going to get more centralization? The answer is probably yes. The question is, though, is the kind of centralization that we're going to get a problem at all? Because what's happening is there's no attacks on excludability. If there's anyone else at any point in time who can offer a more efficient service, you've got an incentive to give it to them. If Dan, who's your second hop node, starts playing economic games, he's actually taking money away from you. So uh, what you've got with routing work is you've got basically a, a consensus mechanism that is paying people for efficiently collecting money and efficiently getting it to nodes that produce blocks. That's what routing work is. Uh, and we talk about it both in terms of the work needed to produce blocks, but also claims on payout, because if you've got multiple hops in the, in the routing path, Every hop has a certain statistical chance of payout. Um, right. And we've got, got the, the, reason, the reason we've got something called a golden ticket is yeah. the unlock. It's if you're using your own money, uh, you use your own money if you can't use other people's money, but you still need to outcompete them, right? Like in order to produce a block faster than the honest chain, I've got to be burning uh, 50. If the honest chain is, is producing blocks and every block requires burning 50K Cyto. If I want to produce a faster blockchain, 
my blocks have to have 50k SIDO or more because I've got to outcompete the honest network. When you produce a block, you're not orphaning uh, work that other people have that hasn't gone into the block. Um, so uh, I, I don't know, maybe this is a bit too much of an explanation, but um, if you're using your own money, then when there is this costly network unlock, you're burning your own money. So it's kind of like, you know, you could spend all of your money and make a bunch of blocks, but then you're going through this expensive burning process to unlock your own money. Or you can put transactions from other people into your blocks. And in that case, it's like Dan putting a transaction from you into his block. And all of a sudden you've got a 66% chance of payout. And your chance of payout is always more than the value that you give to him for producing a block. So it's a net loss to put a transaction that someone else routes into your block. The only reason you want to do it is it helps you produce a block faster than someone else you're competing with. Uh, it's a different economic structure. Um, I think you're going to love it if you look into it. Let, hmm. let me ask you a question. Here. You, you, we talked earlier about the, the attacker. Mm -hmm. is, is the way that this whole thing's set up, such is, is it such that the 51... Well, I'm just trying to figure this out. Like, The 51% attacker is just another user in the network. You don't even necessarily know if there is one. But what you're saying is that if someone does accumulate 51% of the tokens, it, it, there's a tipping point where they where it becomes inefficient for them to attack the network. So like, once you've got 51% of the tokens, you're, you're trying to control governance. You're also now at a tipping point where you're losing efficiency. So you're, you're lo it's costing you money to do that. Uh, let me push you right back to the basics, maybe. Uh, how, do, how does that work? Let's, let's be really specific about what the 51% attack is. And so let's take a look at Bitcoin and say, what is the property that changes between 49% and 51%? Because this is where computer scientists that we've, uh, like the, the one from two weeks ago, had an issue. He's like, oh, but the cap theorem still seems to hold. It's like, yeah, it does, but that's not the 51% attack. The property that changes is with uh, statistical regularity, you get costless work orphaning. If you only have 49% of hash power, you are expecting that orphaning work is going to be costly. This is where the tax comes in, right? Like Bitcoin, it's making it, it's more, why do we get consensus? We get consensus because it's more profitable to build on the longest chain. Why is it more profitable to build on the longest chain? It's more profitable because statistically you've got a you've got less chance of your work being orphaned if you put your block there. The reason for that is that if you if the majority is honest, if you don't have 51% and everyone else follows protocol, you've got to like statistically your block, if you don't put it at the tip of the chain, is going to be less profitable than if you put it at the tip of the chain. So it's costless work orphaning. I don't know, is this is this clear? Most people don't conceptualize it this way. It's at 51%, one of the, the reasons 51% attacks, you can double spend, you can do all of this stuff, is because you can costlessly orphan any work that's thrown at you. Yeah, your cost is just accumulating the token, whereas what you're saying yeah. here, your cost is accumulating the token, plus now you're, you're in the maintenance fee, basically. Well, like, if, if other people, your opponents, they, it doesn't matter where they put their block, because you can costlessly orphan it. You costlessly orphan it because you control the chain. You control where the payouts happen, right? So the cost of producing a block is the same, but the ones that are at the tip of the chain are more profitable. This is what Satoshi is doing. It's his tax. 
right? He's actually taxing people who are dishonest. And people think it's technical. It's like, well, it's, it's actually economic because what he's designed is he's designed a system where up until the 50% mark, you are less profitable if you don't put it at the tip of the chain. And so he's taxing people because he's realized something. He's realized that, look, what do honest nodes do? Honest nodes will always put it at the tip of the chain. But the attacker has to, by definition, be orphaning work. Right? Like, if you propose a block and he's orphaning your block, he can't build at the tip of your block. Right? So work orphaning is the thing that Satoshi is taxing. If you orphan a block, it's more expensive up until the 50% point. And if you cross that 50% point, work orphaning becomes free. Now, the way that routing work solves this is if you're putting a transaction into a block, you're competing with other people who have the transaction to make the block, right? And so there's going to be two of you and you're racing to racing to make a block because the guy that gets that block produced is eligible for the payout. And the guy that's second rate and slowest, well, the transaction went in another block. He's not eligible for a payout. Like Bitcoin, we're punishing inefficiency. And... So you want to be the first one to do this, but note, this is what's happening. If you can't, uh, when you produce a block, if you move a transaction into your block, you are also moving the claims of payout into that block. Yeah. Like if you're a second hop node and all of your transactions are second hop, uh, the, the work, the routing work is the value of the fee divided by two, but your chance of payout is 33% on average, because you've got this, uh, you've got a 33% payout, it's a 50% decay function on uh, routing work, but uh, in ag, you've only get, you get half of the payout chance of the node that precedes you. It's a bit confusing for people because there's, because uh, it's, it's statistical, it's mathematical, but. In simple terms that I'm, that I'm understanding it, like I just see it as like, the more of the token you accumulate into your account, the lower the probability that you're going to get a fully efficient payout. Well, here, here's the thing. You can't orphan work in the system at profit. If I take a transaction from you and I put it into my block, I'm also giving you a chance yeah. to pay it. So costless work orphaning goes away. The only, the only thing you can do, if you don't like that, well, I could not put your transactions into my block. I could try to censor you, right? But if I censor you, one, I'm not putting your transactions in the block, so the work is available for other people in the network. That's kind of like, I don't want this hash power. So it, the Honest Network now is able to produce blocks more rapidly. Now I need to outpace the Honest Chain. I need more fees, more transactions. That's got to come from my wallet. Also, I'm preventing these transactions from being spent, which means that the transactions are now eligible for more and more payout from the routing, the ATR mechanism. So my cost of attack goes up over time. I'm now... And the cost of fee unlock is based on the pre-censorship attack cost of hashing. So I'm not putting your money into my block. That's fine. I'm putting my money into my block, but my cost of fee unlock is now higher right. proportionally. You're actually burning money. Right. So, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about writing work. It's, it never, and this is the, this is the sense in which it solves the 51% attack. The property that changes at 51% in Bitcoin and proof of stake goes away. 
But the reason it goes away is because the person who's producing 51% of the blocks is no longer able to profitably orbit orphan work. So the attack vector here would the worst case scenario here would be someone who accumulates um, majority coin and has a bottomless pit of money. That would be basically your worst nightmare, right? No, but because think it through. What are they going to do? They having a bottomless pit of money. Let's say that let's say it costs them a hundred thousand cyto per block to produce a block. So they got to produce a block. Are they including transactions from other people? If the answer is no, let's make it the worst case. Scenario. Let's say they're not. No, they're okay. not. They're hostile. Okay. And they want to just ruin the chain oh. by raising the fees and they'll just do it. Okay. They so let's give them 60%. They're going to have. Let's give them, let's give them 80%. Okay. Let's give them 85. Uh, previously, just for simple math, simple math. Previously, a block cost 100 bucks. Now, they're, they're, uh, now they've got, um, they've got 85% of the network. So uh, previously at 100, 100 bucks per block, the cost of unlocking the money is $50. Uh, the golden, golden ticket solution is half, of, is half of the money. The routing payout is half of the money. Now, if they are producing blocks at the same speed that the network was producing before, they're going to need to be spending $15 of their own money per block because they still need to produce them at 100 bucks. Let's say they're not going to do that. They're still, if they're going to be spending uh, $85, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be bleeding off the tokens, first of all, to the ATR mechanism. So the people who they are censoring, previously, these transactions were subsidizing the cost of unlocking the money. They're no longer subsidizing the cost. The attacker's paying this hash cost out of pocket. Also, the transactions that can't get spent are now in line for a payout. So that's less money that's available for payout to the attacker because they have uh, a smaller proportion of the uh, ATR, ATR payout. So if you go through the math, you see that the attacker is actually much worse off. Um, they're much better off letting the honest, they're, they're much better off saying, well, I've got financially, I can produce 85% of the work and I'm going to let them produce the 15% of blocks that they can produce. And as soon as you shift, it becomes less profitable for the attacker. Now, here's another beautiful thing. You guys are DPoS, right? So you believe in distributed voting. Now, there is nothing that is more distributed voting than the people on the network making transactions. And the nodes in the network who are capable of identifying this guy who's orphaning blocks. And they say, well, you know, I don't feel comfortable sending my transactions to evil Google. This is no different than uh, the DPoS system. Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to vote for an evil validator. So you do have a distributed voting mechanism. And if the users say, well, I don't like what you're doing, even though you're losing money with this, it's disruptive. I'm not going to send you my routing work anymore. Well, the users was, stop doing hmm? I was just going to ask Go ahead. You, I think you answered it before I even asked it, but the question I was going to ask you was that what if the attacker has like five nodes and they all have 10% or 11% of the supply? The community well, it, it doesn't see that these censor in and then say, well, we're just not going to retweet this person. Or these groups. Well, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is where the Sybil paper would come in. I'd say when you're thinking about routing work and attack vectors, just give the attacker however much you want, because the mechanism is less profitable. It's less profitable to attack than it is to cooperate with other nodes up to literally 100%. Nodes have got the choice. Now, they route the, route the, the transaction. I mean, 
I keep hearing the word profitable though. So it, it, what if it's unprofitable and they don't care and they could do that forever? That's, I mean, these are doomsday scenarios. I like to well, the, the, just go through and see like what you Okay. Do. Well, here's, here's how you would have to do it. You would have to, uh, you would have to be paying out of pocket and you'd have to be paying hash costs. Now, if you can invent all of the money in the world, that's fine. You still have the token itself that's bleeding away from you and you need that token to propose blocks. So the fact that you can print USD is irrelevant if you can't print Cyto, because you're not allowed to lock up USD to produce a block. You've got to lock up Cyto, and the mechanism works. So you're not going to get 100% of it back. Now, if you've got 85% of routing work, a Yeah, it's like, that's all you need to know. <laughs> I see you guys. <laughs> but, no. Oh, it's, it's interesting conversation. Approach. I think, you know, if, like you say, Dan, if you can sustain an attack and you can afford to pay for it, then I guess the Sato community could just walk away and then you have to do it again, which is very similar to our model, ultimately. I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's like working out. There's a million different ways to do it to achieve similar results. It's like, at the end of the day, you're going to have to have some kind of community gathering saying we don't want this entity yeah. right well, um if there's somebody who has you know a, a true money attack where people are actually trying to destroy yeah. instead of be yeah. profitable and ultimately it seems that the, the the community can choose where they route their transactions through as well i think that's an interesting yeah well with bitcoin this is impossible because you don't have pre-mine and the hash rate's not tokenized so anybody with energy anywhere can compete whereas if you had one entity able to just accumulate the coins every day off the open market um it's definitely an attack vector. Now, will it happen in practice? Who knows, you know? But I like to prepare and just gain theory solutions because if it does happen, you want at least some kind of idea with how you would respond. But I think I think the thing I want to kind of keep the level of this conversation on with, with David is it's nice to freaking meet someone in the community that's actually, you know, doesn't have an issue with things like censorship resistance and centralizing supplies and, you know, it's good. Good. There's other people out there and they actually get what we're saying. It's just that we're going to go about it slightly different ways. Um, but I also think, I think it comes back to this point. We, you know, if so, we'll take a look at say a bit more. We'll kind of figure it out over time. If it is what it, what he's saying it is, then um, it's going to come down to the cross posting and the cross pollination ultimately. I really think that's what's going to happen. Sorry, you cut out, David, just at the moment where you were about to drop the, the punchline. <laughs> Can you just finish what you're saying? for these kind of combo i'm fighting my phone yeah me too a little bit it's only a billion dollars so, yeah 44 billion. <laughs> um imagine if you could uh, incentivize your validators with 44 billion dollars what could sato and hive achieve it could change the bloody world um mm. so yeah just you just cut out right at the end there you, you were, you uh, I, I was what i was saying is if you're the, the cash only attacker right you're including other people's transactions. Statistically, your chance of payout is 33% with a random number. Half of the block fee is going for mining. You've got a 33% chance of payout. Yeah. What are you doing? What does that mean? That means if you want 100% chance of being paid, you've got to do three times the hash. Three times the hash is going to cost you 150% of the fees in the block. This is, it's the statistics and the math. People have to dig into it, but 
this is what we mean when we're publishing formal proofs that things are quantifiably costly. You can attack, but in this case, you're burning $150 to recollect $100. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Dan, I hope this answers your question. Um, you know, you. That's clear. I think with the with the ATR mechanism, you cannot stop yourself from bleeding out, because the ATR mechanism will always pull cytotokens away from you to the people that you are censoring. But if you have a limitless amount of cash, you could slow it down by spending like spending way more money on hashing than the honest network was previously. This is it's another reason this stuff is important because what we're actually doing is we're getting the cost of attack above the amount of money in the block. And that's how it, it's how it's you, you got to have this property to actually prevent value extraction because as you point out, otherwise it's just like, well, there's got to be a 51% attack here somewhere. I've just got to find the right thing to be spending money on. And maybe it's buying votes or maybe it's renting hash. With Saito, the work is money and the payout comes from the money, but the hashing tax is generalized across it. So it's like it's profitable if it's someone else's money because you're paying the, you're paying the unlock fee out of someone else's money. It's still profit for you. But if it's your money, if you're using your money to rig the system, you're going to get less back. It's a different way of thinking. Yes. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Clear. Got you. It's you know, it's like commission. Uh, you know, salespeople don't pay themselves commission by buying products from their company because they're going to lose money. It's the same mechanism in blockchain that with buying blocks, really. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think I think the the conclusion to me is like how you're a bit quiet, Matt. I don't know if you oh, moved okay. away. I'll try and be really close, but I think my speech can sort of. The, the solution to me is how quickly can we all integrate each other's solutions? You know, because uh, I think it's, first of all, it's important to have multiple different solutions for the same problem. Um, I don't think there is going to be a one chain solves all. I do think it's going to be a mishmash of chains. And it's just like, how can we integrate? And I, think, I also feel like the more we integrate, the more difficult it's going to be for various attackers to take over the individual networks. Um, it just becomes a much bigger, more complicated problem because if one of us gets attacked uh, and manage, you know, the, the attacker manages to take us over and, and censor us for a period of time before we fork, well, then everyone can just move over to the other chain for a little bit, and then move. Every, everyone, everyone gets to complain on the Web three network that hasn't been shut down yet. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Now that now we just got to figure out how the Web three networks can take the load. <laughs> You, you you sound like a Solana developer right now, but there, there's truth to it. Yeah, yeah. Careful. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah. This is this is it. It's well, it's great. To yeah. Is is there anything anyone else wants to say as far as the the chat? I think we can call it close to it here. Um, I think uh, maybe let David go get some dinner. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, that's, so, yeah, absolutely. Great, great conversation. We said it'd be about three hours, and we didn't lie. So. Yeah, it's been great speaking with you guys. Thank you. And thank you also for uh, the genuine goodwill and the way that you guys engage on Twitter. It's really a model for the rest of us in the space. So, um, you know, I, I, I want to say as well, you know, it's it's few and far between. We Every time we try and genuinely reach out, we get so much negativity back, if they ever respond at all. Uh, and it is, from, for us as well, it is a bit, it's a breath of fresh air to hear a guy like you um, I mean, we, we know our shit to an extent where we've been taken over before and we know what happened. So we've, you've kind of answered our questions and 
uh, in a very open way, no animosity. It's nice to see in the, in the industry. We can actually behave like uh, civilized people. <laughs> you know. Our animosity is reserved for other people. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, you know I, I get it. I agree. Um, anyway, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you uh, for liberating me for dinner while the restaurants are still open, too. Uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Okay? Yeah, we'll definitely cross paths at some point. Okay. Later, David. Good good right. Take care, guys. Thank you. See you all soon. All right, I'm going to uh, call it the end of the show here. Um, I, I, it's interesting because we had quite a low number of comments in the um, in the Leo thread this week compared to normal. I think it's because people were very intently listening to the conversation. Uh, so it was nice to see. Uh, and I'll be going through just now after the after the end here and uploading people who have commented. I saw some questions in there, but I think most of the questions were answered. So, yeah, good to see you all. See you all next week. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, uh, for anyone listening that's interested, we are about to go into testnet of, three sp of the Speak Network, where you're going to be able to get rewards for meeting various milestones in the Speak Network. Um, you know, spinning up a node, you'll get rewards. Uh, mining some Speak to your um, node, you'll get some rewards. Storing content, making new contracts, pushing those contracts into the network, all these different milestones, you'll get rewards for them. Um, and we're going to do two-week sprints. So it'll be like from probably sometime mid-next week, we'll do the first two-week sprint, get some feedback, update the bugs, fix the bugs, and then do another two-week sprint and try and keep progressing the test net until the point where we're like, yeah, this, this is going to be really hard to shut down or really hard to, to scam. Um, so looking forward to that next week for you Speak Network node operators. And... Um, yeah, a community, community breakaway communities is coming on really, really well. We're about to push a new update in the next few days, which will allow for a new sign-up system and a few of the changes where you can earn points for posting on the platforms. Um, at some point in the next couple of months, we'll be tokenizing those, so each platform will have its own token. Uh, and then we can have layer two reward distribution. So looking forward to that. Three speed refactors coming out very soon as well, in the next probably three months, I'd say. Um, so 3Speak will work a lot more efficiently. Uh, we'll have solved many of the, the key issues with 3Speak and the sign-up side of things as well. Um, yeah, so lots of good stuff happening, all up and coming. Any closing comments from you, Don? Uh, no, it's good chat. Um, it's always good to hear other people's perspectives. So we agreed to uh, disagree on some things, but I think either way, we uh, all learned a little bit today. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think, I think you know, I'm sure he sees Sato as a better solution, a more complete and elegant solution, maybe. Um, but, I, you know, Hive ultimately does the same thing. It makes it expensive for an attacker. It's very, very costly for an attacker. And if that attacker's got a safe face, if they've got to pay for the old chain even after that. So there's definitely proof there that the Hive model also is incredibly costly to the attacker um, to the point where they just leave the, they just decide to leave the new fork alone. Um, yeah, when you zoom out, all attacks are basically the same, yeah, and all of the solutions are basically the same. There's yeah. different ways and different methods in between, but it's ultimately a force coming in with a lot of capital, and the community needs a way to defend and pivot versus that attacker once conquered. Yeah. Um, regardless if it's profitable or not, um, you have to think of, well, what happens if it does happen? Yeah. Um, and our solution is the fork, and, you know, Fortunately for us, we've actually been through it, done it, 
and we know that it works. And not only that, we learned, made it much, much more difficult. I actually thought of something here um, for the one month power up. You know, it'd be cool if you had a one month delay on the actual vote. So you see what they voted for, and there's a month when it's a witness. You get to see. So you can see if it's some fucking random ass witness getting voted with, you know, centralizing force of centralizing amount of funds. So you, so you can, I vote, think you can vote straight away, but that vote doesn't go through for a month. Yeah, right now is you um, power up, but you can't vote for a month. Yeah. So that shows us if a centralized amount of stake is comes in. So it is a good barrier. But we could take that a step further and say, well, when you click yeah. that vote button, it takes a month for you to actually vote on a witness if yeah. you're new stake. Yeah. So it could be like it could be like you know, oh shit, how did Fu one two three sock puppet get you know that amount of stake? We should probably do something yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then it's like you can't revote for a period of time, so it's actually fixed. It's costly to then you know you can't just wait for the month to be up and then quickly change your vote. There's a cost to it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like we're consensus believers, so we're doing all we're taking all the little pipes and putting them together where they need to work. And like, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And we're just pragmatically thinking of solutions, and it gets more and more defined. Right? The one month delay was absolutely massive. If that didn't, if we had that before. We would have saw the exchanges power up and we would have been able to pivot. So it's one little parameter that can defend a whole, you know, cover a whole blind spot that you had, a whole wall that you had exposed. Um, And there's much more we can do with it. So I think, um, yeah, it's good. Good conversations. We need to have more of these. We, and that's the thing, man. You know, he just reached out. He said, Hey, you want to vote or you want to have a chat or he he had a head. It was me. It was me that reached out and said, hey. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe okay, we there you go, yeah. Time, but I saw his comments. I was like, dude, we need to have a chat on Saturday. Yeah, exactly. So um, either way, we're always very open when it comes to talking to people. So if ever, anyone has any kind of solutions they want to chat about, we really like talking about consensus and censorship resistant and building practical tools on how to do that. So we're always open to hear and you know, any kind of solutions out there. So Even if we don't ultimately integrate... Um, the, the SATO mechanism on Hive, right, on Hive base layer, because that's sort of going to be a big job to do and everything like that. I'm certainly pro that way of thinking. Um, I'm certainly pro taking a look at the chain and integrating, you know, and what do we want to do ultimately? We, w- we want to integrate cross chains. So any chain can post on our apps and we can check post on their dApps, right, with our Hive accounts. Well, it's going to be in our benefit, in our interest, to integrate the chains that have got the same fundamental assumptions that have got the same fundamental values um, and integrate similar consensus defense mechanisms because then you're just going to have a more censorship resistant network Um, i mean david called it um what was it non-exclusion non-exclusivity and i get that there's a nuance to the to the the understanding but i think ultimately we really are talking about the same thing um yeah just nice to see nice seeing i you know i'm definitely that conversation, if nothing else, is, you know, the most practical thing that we can do from that is look at integrating Sato accounts earlier than what we would have. And I think that's uh, ultimately a good thing and a good result of this chat. If, you know, if everything checks out and obviously maybe there's some skeletons in the closet there, who knows, but I, I, I want to give them benefit of the doubt for the call. Yeah. Well, there's something to, I mean, we can always leverage the ideals behind um, costly attacks, and that can always be implemented on, on a layer. Yeah. Um, 
you know, maybe even a transaction um, or incentive layer or something we can do with Speak Network. But yeah, that's why it's always important just to, you know, you don't look at it through one lens. There's no way one protocol is going to do everything. We believe it's just going to be a bunch of different types of protocols working together. And um, one thing we did all agree on was the utility. Utility will rise to the top. So it's just really putting this stuff into practice. There's so much theory out there and, um, you know, very little practice. So, we're, you know, focus on practically implementing and doing what you say your technology can be used for. And, um, yeah. Yep. Cool stuff. All right. Let's close it down there. Um, see you all in the middle of the week for the Speak Network Testnet and see you all next week for CTT. Laters. Later. Cheers.